We probably don't talk enough about dynasty formats in fantasy baseball, so I'll ask Shelley Verstraight about that and a whole lot more next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, July the 2nd. It's show number 31 of the 2021 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Friday full edition for you. We'll have our feature expert interview with Shelley Verstraight from Dynasty Guru and the Dynasty's Child podcast discussing playing fantasy baseball in dynasty formats, as well as a whole lot of prospects talk and more. We'll have our Market Watch Player News reports. Harold Nichols has coverage of the National League, including Corey Dickerson, Kettle Marte, Blake Snell, and some second-half possible All-Stars. And Ray Murphy has news from the American League, including Jose Abreu, Jose Urquidy, the Blue Jays trade, and our weekly Edward Olivares update. We'll also have our regular commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business, in the Minor League Minute. Baseball HQ Minor Leagues Analyst Rob Gordon looks at lesser-known names in this year's Futures game. In the Frequent Flyer, Baseball HQ Analyst Alex Becky looks at Houston outfielder Jake Myers. And in Extra Innings, I'll be talking about ADP first-rounders at the halfway point of the season. It's another big Friday full edition. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? We have reached the halfway point of the season, and we gotta talk some baseball. Yes, I know we're a week short of the All-Star break, but it is the halfway point of the 2021 season, pretty much. After games of Thursday night, Major League teams have played 2,407 games. That's 49.5% of the full season. The exact halfway point will come sometime toward the end of Friday's slate, when we get to the fifth inning of the 2430th game. But waiting for that would mean putting out this edition of the Baseball HQ Radio Pod a whole day late, just for the sake of some precise mathematical accuracy. Look, it's way closer than using the All-Star break as the halfway point. But right now we're at the starting point of this edition of Baseball HQ Radio. And in the first inning of our Friday full edition, it's part one of our feature expert interview with Shelley Verstraight from Dynasty Guru and the Dynasty's Child podcast. Shelley, welcome to Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, Patrick. Uh, yeah, thanks for having me. This is uh, really exciting. Really exciting for me, too. Uh, first time for you, I'm pretty sure. And uh, it's always a pleasure to get a first timer. Yeah, yeah. Uh, first time, but long time listener. Oh, good. Uh, how many leagues are you playing this season, uh, Shelley, and what formats do you play? <laughs> I'm in way too many leagues. I have I have trouble saying no whenever I'm invited to a league, but currently I'm in 18 leagues. Oh my gosh. Um, I know. Yeah. Most of them are like longtime kind of dynasty leagues. So it's a tad bit different than redraft. Uh, but yeah, 18. Uh, most of them are roto. Um, I am in five redraft leagues and then two uh, draft and holds. So I have my work cut out for me during the weeks. How many of them are so-called experts leagues and how many of them are just friends and family and those kinds of leagues? Um, let's see, four are quote-unquote expert leagues. Um, TGFBI, Raslam, um, um, let's see, uh, TDGX2, and then uh, Tap Wars. 
and all the rest are just leagues that you play in because you know the people? Yep, yep. I know I know someone um, who was in the league, got invited, someone uh, left. Do you want to fill in? Kind of one of those things, yeah. Yeah, right. Uh, what's your oldest league? Uh, my oldest league is uh, my longtime uh, dynasty league. I think we're going on eight years now. Um, so, yeah, I guess that, that's my oldest one. How are your teams doing this year? Uh, some are doing good. Some are doing bad, uh, especially in some of those dynasty leagues where, you know, uh, you know, a manager leaves and then you're stuck with a uh, roster that is uh, not the best. So some of those, they need some work, but I knew that going in. Um, but, you know, overall, I'm, ju- I'm thinking I'm holding my own, I guess I'll say. I noticed that you're in the top 30 of the Great Fantasy Baseball Invitational. Out of 435 players, most of whom are pretty good, a lot of experts, a lot of really accomplished um, NFBC players. So your top decile in that league, which is outstanding, what has gone right for that team? Um, I, uh, I don't know. I need to like knock on wood. Um, but I haven't had too many injuries so far. Um, I mean, you know, uh, Tatis has been up and down when it comes to injuries, but when he's been playing, um, he's been great. Um, I drafted, you know, Vlad Jr. My, my pitching has been pretty good from the start. I drafted a lot of uh, White Sox pitchers, so it's been okay. Um, but yeah, I think mainly it's I've, you know, managed to avoid major injuries. What do you think the ceiling is for that team? Honestly, I think this is really about it. I have zero saves so far. I'm one of, I think, six players in the entire TGFBI league that has no saves. Um, in the draft, I went the wrong way when it came to San Diego. I drafted Pomeranz and Pagan. Me too. Instead of Mal- yep. Instead of Melanson. And then I also drafted Jordan Hicks. And uh, yeah, so I went 0 for 3 in the draft. And I pretty much been over whenever you know fab comes every week i just can't either i don't spend enough i buy the wrong i purchase the wrong guy just yeah just yeah so i think this is probably about it for the team uh because i just can't find a save to save my life I noticed that you're leading your individual league in the Fantasy Baseball Invitational by a single point over uh, Greg Smith. I don't know Greg Smith, but he's two slots behind you in the overall. And I'm wondering if having such a close overall competitor affects how you manage the individual team in the in the league context. Um, it really does. I mean, every time, like on uh, Saturday night, Sunday mornings when I'm working through my fab, like I'm always checking to see where he is, right? right. And um Seeing like, oh, you know, he could probably, he's probably looking for either some saves or some home runs because I'm just looking at where he is on, you know, in the standings and seeing possibly like where, uh, where he can move up. Um, but it, it's, it's really pushing me to keep going uh, because, I mean, I really want to uh, finish at least at the top, in the, in the top of this league because I know I'm not going to win the overall. So just having a guy um, basically push me. Uh, to make sure that I get those fab bids in, make sure I'm competitive. It's it's really nice to have someone to, to push you along there. And by the way, I think I saw a story this morning or yesterday morning that Drew Pomerantz is on his way back and may oh. figure into the saves mix. So if you kept him on reserve this whole time, which I doubt you did, but uh, maybe it might be time to get a preemptive bid in there. Uh, you might pick up four or five saves and that'll at least push you ahead of all those other zeros. 
Exactly. Yeah. So. In Raz Slam, uh, that's a best ball point style league, an experts league run by the guys at Raz Ball. You're about halfway down that pack and about halfway down in your 12 team league. What has gone less well in that league than has gone well for you in TGFBI? Uh, injuries. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, my, I mean, injuries and then the, the guys that I drafted at the, you know, the beginning of the draft just is just really underperformed. Um, when you go Betts, Eloy, Glaber Torres, and Alec Bohm with your four out of your first seven picks, yeah, it's kind of really hard to make up any ground there. Um, I mean, I've never played in a best ball point style before, so I didn't know what I was, you know, I didn't know what to expect going in. But when you kind of draft injured guys and underperformers, you can't really come back from that. It's really hard. <laughs> yeah, no strategy works if, if all the guys get hurt. What What was your strategy going into that league? I'm very curious about it because uh, I, this is my second year in playing in it, and the first year, of course, was the uh, the uh, COVID season. So, really hard to tell if your strategy works when you're only playing a 60 game run instead of the 160. And and I'm curious about strategies in that format because I have never played it before and I have some fairly unorthodox ideas going into it, which haven't panned out this year. But uh, I'm curious, what were you thinking of as a strategy going in? If you remember, it's a long time ago. Yeah. Um, I was kind of going a little bit more bat heavy than than pitching heavy. Um, and I was going trying to get, uh, at least with bets, someone really stable, um, and then like with Eloy and other guys like that, I was trying to go for power, uh, just based on, based on the point schedule and then like sprinkle in some starting pitching, um, throughout. Um, so I don't know if that was a correct strategy. I, 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 I don't know. Uh, I mean, this was like my first time playing, so. My thought when I was first invited into the league was why wouldn't you just load up on hitters in the first 10 or so rounds? Yeah. Because. A hitter it, it, over the year, a hitter like Tatis or, you know, Soto or, or anybody in sort of the top 15, 20, 25 hitters is going to amass 500 points or more in the full season. And the highest pitcher is going to be about 450. I, I, I did right. the projections. I mapped them out according to the points program that the league uses. And I, I just didn't see how you could possibly draft pitchers with any of your early picks without surrendering literally hundreds of points to the best available hitter at that time. And then that's what I did. And I was doing pretty well for a while. And then it started to slow down because you do have to have some pitching. And, you know, my, my other part of my theory was in the back end of the draft, I'll just draft a million starters because, you know, in any given week, nine of them should manage to, to put together decent enough starts that, or, or I also draft a lot of closers, saves were with eight points. So I thought it, by balancing those two things, I should be able to do pretty well and it hasn't worked out and I'll be damned if I can figure out why. Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah, that's kind of what I did. I mean, I probably went a little bit more with the upside, uh, uh, like the legit starters. I think I got, uh, Lucas Giolito in like the third round or something. But yeah, I mean, I just, I agree with you. Uh, just the amount, uh, just in that format, hitters just are quote unquote better, the better bet, especially at the top of the draft with all those elite hitters. Uh, they're the better bet um, long-term, so. Well, like I said, it still makes sense to me and I think I'm still going to try it again the next time the league drafts, but 
I wonder if I'm going to have to at least start thinking about how I approach pitching. I was unlucky. I uh, grabbed uh, Denelson Lamette, I think, was one of my first pitchers. Mm. And that was a toss of the coin. You know, of course, you're betting uh, on the injury problem. And, and unfortunately, I lost that bet. But other than that, you know, if, if fairly far down the draft, you can get a Tyler Molly or guys like that. And if you can get enough of them, I think, then uh, it could work. But the trick is getting enough of them because exactly. everybody's still grabbing them as you go down. And, and there was lots of guys in my league who were drafting, like, the first four rounds were all starting pitchers, which struck me as just really odd. Uh, but, you know, you never know. We'll have to see how it works out at the end. Uh, Shelley, you're an editor and a writer at the Dynasty Guru, which is at the DynastyGuru, all one word, dot com. How did you get started at that site? Um, I was kind of uh, Twitter friends with the uh, with the producer of the Dynasty's Child podcast, um, and he noticed that I was um, writing for another site at the time about prospects. And he was like, "Hey, do you do you want to come on? Uh, you know, as a as a guest one time?" I'm like, "Yeah, sure." Um, and I just kind of like hit it off with the host, and uh, we had some guys kind of leave because of just you know family things, just whatever, and I became a regular, um, I guess, co-host over on, um, on that podcast. And then um, the previous editor of the site was like, well, since you already write about prospects, why don't you just move your stuff over here? And things kind of escalated from there. And now I'm the editor over there. So, yeah. How long have you been affiliated with Dynasty Guru? Um, I think I started kind of like in early 2019. Um, so yeah, a couple years. And where were you before that? What were you doing then? Um, I was kind of writing, um, over on Rotographs, uh, just a little bit. Um, and then I was also writing over at Prospects 1500. Um, I was writing more over there. How did you get interested in writing about uh, baseball and fantasy baseball and prospects in the first place? Um, I, I don't know. I, it, it really just kind of started because I was bored one day during the summer. Um, and, um, I started watching a lot more baseball. And then the following year, um, I decided to finally play fantasy baseball and I just got hooked and addicted. And then I got into, um, a, that dynasty league that we were talking about earlier um, just because a friend was starting one up and then I was like, oh, wow, there's like so many more baseball games and more baseball players. And I got sucked into prospects and then decided, Hey, I'll just give writing a shot. That seems like fun. So yeah, just all kind of uh, snowballed. Did you have any writing background before that? Any journalism courses in university or anything like that? Um, no, no. Um, I, I am a CPA. Uh, so um, I, I, I'm more of the numbers side than the, the writing side, but it, it's been a fun kind of, um, uh, challenge and experience to, you know, just get better at writing. Cause it's not something that I've typically done. Being a CPA connotes a, a familiarity with numbers and a comfort with dealing with numbers, but not on the same way that uh, we hear about a lot of people who are now fantasy baseball information providers. More, we're more on the stats and pure math side. How have you found that your CPA background and experience has enabled you to look at the data perhaps differently, uh, but at least effectively when it comes to the advanced stats and those kind of things that uh, we tend to think of as the purview of the stats majors? 
Right. Um, I, I, I think most of it, it, um, organization, like I am, I have like a lot of different spreadsheets that track all of my leagues and, um, where, you know, like different types of formulas that I use in like Excel to like, see, oh, I, I can, there's, it's easier for me to move up in this category versus this category. So it's more of numbers crunching versus like the pure stats math part. So I think it's more of organization um, that my CPA background has really helped me with. Years ago, I, I've never played Dynasty, and we'll talk about that later, but uh, I, I have played in a keeper league. My first Roto League was a keeper league, and as the information advantage waned away with the coming of the internet, it became more and more important to maintain your advantage in the keeper league by paying attention to prospects. Did you find that you gravitated towards the prospects because you, you were in that Dynasty league, and uh, Dynasty's all about getting those prospects early and using them as the foundation to build yourself a, a consistent long-term contender. Was that the root of the prospects thing? Yeah, definitely. Um, it was just trying to find just some type of little advantage um, in that, in that dynasty league, um, like a interesting uh, prospect or, or, you know, an interest, yeah, an interesting prospect that I could either keep, long-term or maybe use in a trade, something like that. So yeah, it's just trying to find like those, you know, needle in a haystack, diamond in the rough type of guys that uh, can help my team. I also found that it was really important as prospects became more important in the league formats that I was playing in, that you have to know when a prospect is not going to make it, but still has the perception that he is going to make it because that's when he has maximum trade value for you. And and understanding that requires, uh, an, unfortunately, an enormous amount of effort to follow what's going on in the prospect world. And that's where sites like Dynasty Guru and uh, Baseball HQ has a pretty robust scouting uh, setup as well just keeping track of all that's going on in prospect world now seems like a full-time job practically. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. I mean, I always feel that I'm, I'm, I, I always strive to just go a little bit deeper, look a little bit more, but I mean, there's going to be guys that you miss, like you've never heard of. Um, like, uh, see a guy who kind of popped up quote unquote, uh, this year, uh, Trevor Rogers for Miami. Mm -hmm. I mean, I knew of him, but I just never expected that he was going to do this. And he has really, really impressed me. So even if you have your, you know, nose to the ground, tr trying to go through, um, all of these games and prospects, you still kind of, some guys come up and surprise you and and sometimes guys come up, though, and they surprise you in a negative way. And that brings me to an article you wrote a week or so ago, a roundtable that you held with your colleagues at Dynasty Guru, uh, Ken Balderston, Bob Cyphers, Phil Barrington, and Brett Cook. And the subject was, what do you do with prospects who struggle when they first come to the big leagues? And Ken made an interesting point about how we get invested in our prospects. What do you think he meant by that, and how does it color how we manage slow starts and how we should? Um, what I think that he meant by that is you get, uh, uh, you fall in, quote unquote, you fall in love with what you have seen in the minors. And if someone just doesn't perform straight when they come up, um, that that's, that's going to be okay. I mean, you, you, you invest in a guy because you believe in him. And even if he does struggle at the beginning, it, it's okay. Like, I mean, we've gotten 
uh, totally spoiled by the, you know, the Juan Soto's and the Ronald Acuna's, um, uh, Vladimir Guerrero Jr.'s who have come up and haven't like really struggled. Um, but there's guys like Joe Adele and Jared Klenick who we've seen their talent. We've seen video. We've heard scouts rave about these guys, but they've struggled. And that's, that's okay. Just keep, just, just be invested in your guys if you believe in them. On the flip side of that, though, it, it can, it seems, be a bit of a, of a weakness to be in love with your prospect and because it blinds you to their faults, as it were. You know, we're, we've all been in love and the, the people you're in love with do something that they shouldn't uh, or somehow should be disappointing to you, but you have this veil or gauze in front of your eyes and you just can't see the bad news <laughs> that's uh, building up right in front of you and you hang on to the player in this case for perhaps longer than you should because you're invested emotionally in them and that, that there's a whole area of behavioral psychology that says, you know, the ability to see things as they are, uh, there's a certain amount of recency bias, there's a certain amount of I own this, therefore I can't let go kind of bias. Mm-hmm. It seems like it's a two-sided street. Yeah, yeah, it it really is. And I mean, you're you're going to make mistakes either, either way. Um, but I, I always believe like if you just believe in a guy I'm fine with just holding on. Sometimes that hurts me. (laughs) Ken also advised readers to watch the games, he said, because it's important to see and believe what's going on right in front of you. And I think that was in the context of the advanced stats at the major league level. Sometimes the inclination is to believe the advanced stats, but the sample is way too small because there's only been, you know, 10 games or or 12 games or something like that. And Ken seemed to say, look, put your eyes on this player and see what your eyes are telling you. What do you think of that advice? Um, I, I, I love that advice. I mean, I use that, uh, with major league players and also, uh, minor league players. Like I like to, I like to look at the stats because they have, they have meaning as they have meaning, but when you watch a guy, um, uh, whether it's a pitcher, a hitter, you can see things. You can see good things. You can see bad things. You can, if you're, I always, you can just trust your gut. If you're seeing a guy, um, say a pitcher who who looks really good, but the stats just aren't there yet, but you're seeing things like I, this, this guy looks really legit, but it's just not working out. Maybe there's some bad, bad luck in there, right? You don't see that when you just look at the stat line. So if you watch a game, you can see how the game progressed and how those stats actually came to be. So I am a big proponent of watching games. Is one game enough? How much do you have to watch? My concern would be in that situation that you watch a game and you just happen to see your hitter, you know, put a few good swings on some bad pitches or from bad pitchers and, uh, you know, hit a few line drives, uh, poke a couple of uh, gap doubles and you think to yourself, well, never mind the fact that he's hitting, you know, 190, this guy can really hit. And in fact, he really can't. You just caught him on a good day. Sure. Uh, yeah, you definitely have to watch um, a couple games uh, to get a, uh, a, a a true feel for kind of uh, what the guy is, is showing you. Because yeah, every every everyone has a good day where they have, you know, two line drive, line drive doubles and you think that, you know, he's the bee's knees, but uh, he might not be. He might just, just had a good day. And he might have been facing a bad pitcher, which is the bigger concern. Exactly. You're watching him in the minors. There's such a, a wide variety of, of competitive level 
especially among the pitching, that uh, you really got to be careful about that. I think that's one reason that sites like Dynasty Guru, Baseball HQ, Scouting, and so forth can really help because those guys, uh, the people who work on those sites, tend to see more players and tend to have a better feel for what, what looks like is good but isn't or what doesn't look like is good but is. And they can, uh, if you amass enough wisdom from enough sources, maybe you get a clearer picture than, you know, just uh, opening up a browser window and watching a sort of grainy video from the some high A-league somewhere. Yeah. Phil Barrington's advice was to trade prospects wherever you can for established proven players. And it struck me that the wisdom of this approach depends where your team is in the rebuild to win competitive cycle of dynasty leagues and keeper leagues, I suppose. What did you think of Phil Barrington's advice? Always trade those prospects if you can cash them in. Um, I mean, it, it can work uh, for uh, certain players. Um, and I mean, I, I understand where he's coming from. Like if you can trade uh, just a prospect who is just, you know, where prospect Twitter is going crazy over, over player X and, but you're competitive and you can trade it for a, an older reliable player that helps you now. I totally understand, but you definitely have to be in the right competitive window to do that. Um, like if you're rebuilding, right, you don't want to trade for a, a, a veteran. It just, it doesn't really make sense. So it definitely, um, Phil's advice definitely, uh, you definitely should take his advice if if you're in that quote unquote competitive um, competitive cycle of your dynasty or keeper league. How long do you think it typically takes to work through that cycle? In your experience, you play a lot of dynasty. Yeah, it it could really it could really take a while. Like um, I was invited to a dynasty league probably about three years ago. Um, it was a really, really old team. It didn't have a lot of prospects and I'm still working through that. Like I'm still very down, uh, very far down in the, in the standings because it's just, it's just really hard to basically build a roster from nothing. Um, but in other situations, um, I, I have been able to just flip like the right prospects for the right, um, not, veteran player but kind of you know 26 27 28-ish player and it's and it's worked out so for me it really is the luck of the draw and what your roster currently looks like how long it's going to take you to, to flip it over when i was playing in keeper leagues I found that one of the problems that we had was that when certain teams got really quite good at maintaining their position or happened to either luck into or skill into having a really solid base of prospects who come up at low salaries and they end up being very dominant for a long time and that becomes discouraging to some of the members of the league who then leave the league and you've sort of we were constantly facing this issue of having to replace owners which as you probably agree is one of the real drags of being in a league when you're you know every year it's two new guys coming in and playing the worst teams and they get frustrated and they leave and then you got to find another two guys and this goes on and on and on and it seems to me that it would be even worse in dynasty where you know if you lucked into Ronald Acuna back when he was uh, just starting out in the minor leagues and now you re- and you've got him and perhaps you've got another similar quality of, of 
major league player on your roster, and he's never going to leave that roster, barring some kind of uh, trade or or injury disaster. How do you manage the expectations of everybody in your league when so many guys must get frustrated that there's they're just never going to be competitive because of the way the league shook out with the with the good talent all flowing to a couple of teams? Yeah, I mean that's 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 really hard, and I am in two leagues. Uh, where we kind of have that situation. Uh, one league, I'm actually one of the managers that has uh, a legit squad. Um, I mean, I have like Acuna Jr. and Juan Soto. So I, that I just happen to look into them. Um, and yeah, I've been competitive, obviously, for a couple years now because of that. And it's not going to, I'm not really going to not be close to the top because I have like some really good players. And I mean, we've lost a couple of, of, of managers because, because of that. But I, 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 and it really stinks because I mean, I'm having fun because I'm winning, but I, I'm in another league where it's the, I'm at the bottom. Right. And I have a semi competitive team, but there's just like this one team that is just, just has a legit squad and it's, it's frustrating. Um, I still like to compete, so I'm just trying to maybe even just place, you know, a second or something. But yeah, it, it's a really str- it's a hard str- hard struggle, and I I don't really know how to how to attack that from a dynasty or, or keeper uh, side. Um, it's just kind of the luck of the draw, and it it stinks. Kind of the luck of the draw as to the caliber of uh, of manager that joins the league too. If sure. you get a guy who's willing to put in the time, another aspect of it, Shelley, I wonder about is is entry fees and prize money, because it's got to be all the harder to keep a guy interested for what might be a four or five year rebuilding cycle if he has to put you know eight hundred bucks in every year just to to keep his spot, knowing that he's dead money. Yeah, yeah, that's that that's the the biggest obstacle. I mean, I know in a couple of um, a couple of my dynasty leagues where um, we've been trying to find managers and the the teams that are available are not that great. Um, we've come together um, as a as a league just to get some type of stable ownership. Like we will just the the remaining people in the league will just cover the new manager's uh, league fee for about two years, oh. just so we have some type of stability there um, because it, it, it gets really difficult to having to just churn. Right. So just to get some stability, a lot of the other managers just, you know, pony up his, his portion. As I said, I was not playing dynasty. I was playing keepers. And one of the, uh, mechanisms within keeper leagues that keeps that churn a little quicker is the fact that uh, all the players are going to either um, contract out or money out because the contracts get too high to keep them because the salaries are rising every year. After a while, you just can't afford to keep it. In your case, you have Soto and uh, Acuna. They would price out because you literally couldn't put a team together after a while. How does the team development strategy, do you think, differ between keeper leagues because they have salary caps and finite contracts and these other mechanisms to push players back into the free agent pool versus dynasty leagues where you literally can hang on to a player forever? Yeah, I mean, it, it's definitely different. Uh, dynasty, uh, I, I have found that there's um, a little bit more trading. Um, 
because there's not that turnover. So there during the during the draft, it's basically like the first the the players who were drafted, you know, in the previous summer, maybe some international players, but the guys uh, on the waiver wire are just kind of uh, not that great. So I have found that in Dynasty League that there's actually more trading um, than in keeper leagues because keeper leagues uh, sometimes during the initial uh, kind of redraft, uh, there is a little bit more talent available. Um, and then also contracts like really uh, change things as well. So I think in Dynasty, there's a little bit more trading. Well, Shelley, after you curated this gathering of your colleagues at the Dynasty Guru, uh, what is your advice about prospects who are struggling? And uh, especially if you're in a competitive situation where you really can't afford to keep them uh, on your roster because they might cost you a championship or a, or a high money finish. Yeah, um, where I kind of come down is uh, I, I, if you're able to keep them on your roster in your minor leagues and you uh, really, really believe in the talent, just just trust the scouts, trust the people who watch them, you know, more than I do, more than you do. Uh, just trust their opinion of a player. Um, that's how I kind of uh, go about it. But uh, if you if you need that if you need that spot in in your particular uh, keeper league or or dynasty league, um, and you're in the money, I can understand moving on. But just just trust in it. Just trust in what um, other people are uh, saying who have actually uh, seen the player. And I think that's a really good point, and it's important to find uh, experts and analysts who you do trust, who have been right for you more often than they've been wrong, who make good arguments and make good uh, cases for the players, pro or con, rather than just throwing a net around a million analysts and reading them all, because uh, you need to you need to find it's it's kind of like, well, it's kind of like running a stock portfolio. You're much better off to have a handful of experts whom you really trust rather than just looking at, you know, every Jim Cramer out there. Exactly. In kind of a related topic, Shelley, during a recent Dynasty's Child podcast, you discussed whether two months at the time was enough to make decisions about whether to go forward or rebuild in a Dynasty format. It's three months now, but in general, how long is enough time for you to make that decision in those long-term formats? Um, for me, it's probably about now, right around right around the All Star break. Um, if I have an if I have an older team, and it's just not cutting it, I can maybe understand maybe uh, uh, trading some of those interesting veterans uh, for some prospects for uh, you know prospects of teams that are competitive. Um, but if I'm still kind of in the money, I'm I'm going all for it. But it, it's definitely right about now where I kind of take a good look at my teams and being like, yeah, I thought I was going to be competitive, but no, I, I need to do a little bit more retooling. I think that's doubly true in the, uh, in leagues that play in roto category formats, which is most leagues, I, I still believe. And when you look at the categories, I think you have to see where am I in each category? Am I at the top or the bottom of a clump? If I'm at the bottom of a clump, can I make a five or six point jump relatively quickly in that clump and so forth? So there's a, a lot of things to consider. Uh, Shelley, this has been really interesting so far. Let's take a quick break here so I can get the National League and American League Newswatch segments in with Nick and Ray, and we'll pick it up uh, just a little later in part two. All right. See you then. 
Shelley Verstrait is a writer and editor at thedynastyguru.com and appears at the Dynasty's Child podcast regularly. Shelley will be back for part two of our discussion a little later in the show. Coming up, we have our Market Watch player news reports. Nick has the National League news. Ray has the American League next on Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you very much. I gotta, I gotta thank all of you, all the fans here in San Francisco. Road and home, it's been fantastic. I want to thank you all. I gotta thank my teammates for their support. Through all this, you guys have been strong, and you've given me all the support in the world. And I'll never forget it as long as I live. Thank you. I gotta thank my family, my mother, my wife Liz, my kids, Nikolai, Shakari, and Asia. I'm glad I did it before you guys went to school. Thanks for being here. I gotta thank the Washington Nationals for your support. Thank you for understanding this day. It means a lot to me. My dad. HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our Market Watch Player News Reports. Ray Murphy is on deck with the American League Report. And leading off, it's our National League News and our old friend, Baseball HQ Pitcher Matchups Analyst, Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Patrick. Good to be here. Let's start in St. Louis, where their offense got some good news, and heaven knows their offense could use some good news. They activated outfielder Harrison Bader from the 10-day IL uh, late this week. In a corresponding move, they sent outfielder Lars Newtbar back to AAA. Phil Hurts on the story for playing time today. Is this as good a news for the St. Louis offense as I think it is? Yeah, Bader returns after his second long stay on the IL in 2021. In between, he batted 73 times, had a 247 expected batting average, 93 PX. He did have four homers and three steals, so Bader's expected to start most days. Newtbar was up for a little more than a week and went four for 25. He may return to the Cardinals at some point this season, but is not likely to help much on fantasy roster. You know, when you listed off those stats, uh, he had uh, four homers, three steals in 73 uh, at bats or plate appearances, it's not clear which which is which. But uh, if you multiply that by roughly eight, which would be a 600 plate appearance season, it, that would be 32 homers, 24 steals. And uh, I know that the Cardinals would love to have that, as would most fantasy players, if he can maintain that pace. Very definitely. I mean, those are the kind of numbers that you look for in fantasy. And I, you know, I would encourage everyone to go look on their waiver wire and see if Bader may be sitting out there. As long as he's been on the IL, somebody may have dropped him. Uh, just getting discouraged with the with the roster spot being taken up. Yes, uh, especially in leagues where your reserve list is limited, like uh, most NFBC situations. I think all of them, in fact, limit you to seven reserve slots. And you, you know, you're looking at other injury situations. You want to stream some pitchers and so forth. And all of a sudden, that reserve list spot starts to look like something uh, precious and that needs to be uh, held on to and used more productively than waiting for Harrison Bader to come back from one long injury after another. Right, very definitely. 
In San Francisco, the Giants outfielder Mike Talkman was placed on the 10-day IL on Thursday. He's got a knee sprain. The team activated outfielder Jalen Davis also had a knee sprain from the 60-day list. Uh, Jock Thompson reports San Francisco is having an unusually strong year. Uh, how does this affect their offense as we look ahead? Well, after a decent start following the trade to San Francisco, Talkman is hitting just nine for his last 63, now hitting 183 for the season. And has steadily lost at bats uh, versus right-handers to both Alex Dickerson and Lamont Wade. Uh, no prognosis yet on his return. Right-handed hitting Jalen Davis is making his 2020 Monday debut after posting an 1172 OPS with seven home runs, 19 strikeouts, eight walks, and 67 plate appearances at AAA Sacramento. Previously posted a 515 OPS with two homers and 54 at bats at the major league level. Uh, in our call-up report, our analyst pegged him as a 7D prospect with reserve outfielder profile. He's shown solid power metrics in the minors, but with uh, low contact issues that probably cap his batting average potential in the majors and likely relegate him to a fourth outfielder role. Maybe worth a roll of the dice for NL-only leaguers in need of power, but unlikely to grab a starting spot and run with it, especially with the Giants currently sitting atop the standings and needing to put the best players on the field as often as they can. Yeah, that's about how I read it. They've got a lot of options in San Francisco in their outfield. And as I said, they're they're playing well. They're competing against the uh, San Diego Padres and the Los Angeles Dodgers and uh, quite a dogfight for top spot in that division. So they're not going to have time, I don't think, to take a look at a, a guy like Jalen Davis and wonder for two weeks, you know, can we give this guy some rope and see how far he runs with it. I think anybody like him is likely to be on a short leash. And for that reason, I really, unless your league is very deep and you have really a very strong need for an outfielder, I don't think Jalen Davis is a guy for fantasy right now. Yeah, I think you're, you're exactly right about that. I mean, the, the Giants need to win. They need to win now. Uh, they can't afford to be looking at someone to see how good he's going to be. And so my guess is Jalen Davis is going to be uh, on the bench or just uh, uh, spelling someone every once in a long while. In Miami, uh, one of the first trades of the year, maybe the first trade of the year, certainly the first one I can think of with any kind of names that I've heard of, uh, the Marlins traded outfielder Corey Dickerson and right-hander Adam Simber to Toronto, and they get back infielder Joe Panic and right-hander Andrew McInvale. We'll talk with Ray about the American League side of this, like what does Toronto get out of this deal, but what's going on with the Miami side? Well, I expect Panic to continue to be used as a utility player for the Marlins who've had a number of infield injuries, he also gets a consistent playing time at third base. That would free up uh, John Birdie to be used in multiple positions around the field. So far in 2021, Panic has a 257 expected batting average, two homers and 114 at-bats. That production makes him a candidate for fantasy rosters only in the very deepest of league. Uh, the trade, the most important part of this trade, however, is uh, sending Dickerson to, uh, to Toronto. That suggests that the Marlins are committed to giving Jesus Sanchez an extended run as an everyday outfielder. Uh, since being called up, Sanchez has been struggling, 10 for 41 with a couple of homers, but he was a top 100 prospect, so keep an eye on his production. He's the kind of player who could catch fire at any time. I've seen him play. Uh, Toronto was in Miami not long ago, and uh, Jesus Sanchez hit a ringing home run. It was a, one of those kind of very little arc line drive home runs that cleared the fence with room to spare and kind of banged into something back there louder than you would expect. So far this year, 51 at-bats, a uh, couple of home runs, seven RBIs. He's batting two thirty-five. 
this still seems a little bit to me like a long shot. If you're, again, when we talked about if you're in a situation where you need an outfielder, you could do worse, but I don't think you want to bet the farm on Jesus Sanchez and until he shows something and by then it'll probably be too late. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, this is a guy who's got, got an incredible amount of potential, but it's still potential and it could be, uh, could be next year or the year after before he really begins to show it. So, uh, you really have to catch lightning in a bottle to find value in Jesus Sanchez, I think, for the rest of it. Meanwhile, Joe Panic, I read a story in the Miami media that said, at least at first blush, and of course sometimes they just say this to get uh, all the fans interested a little bit in what is really relatively minor trade, but they were saying they expect Joe Panic to play uh, quite a bit more than he did in Toronto, and that makes him a little bit more interesting, especially if you're in an American League-only league, as I am, and Joe Panic gets traded, but you can keep his stats. I think he's got to take a little uptick here. Yeah, I think maybe he does. I mean, it's uh, certainly worth it. If he's going to play more, he's certainly the kind of guy who's worth looking at. Batting average isn't that bad. I said a couple of homers. So, uh, you know, especially if you have injuries and need fill-ins, Panic could be a uh, a useful middle infield. And one other aspect of the trade, Nick, is in the bullpen in Miami. Uh, Simber was playing a role there. He leaves, so I guess everybody else steps up a, a notch. Uh, we expect Jimmy Garcia and Anthony Bass to get most of the saves, but, you know, Floro, Detweiler, guys like that, Curtis, maybe move them up a little smidge, but probably still not fantasy relevant. Yeah, I think you're right. I think no much, not, not much real change in the outlook of that bullpen, even with Simber gone. In Arizona, Nick, hey, here's some news. Diamondbacks outfielder Kettle Marte has a hamstring injury placed on the 10-day IL on Monday because of a strained left hamstring, which is a bit of news because it's usually his right hamstring, which cost him a month earlier this year. Uh, the team recalled a right-hander named Humberto Castellanos from AAA. Uh, what goes on in Arizona with Kettle Marte once again on the shelf? Marte missed over a month with a right hamstring issue. Now it's his left hamstring. Uh, this injury doesn't sound quite as serious, but uh, the Diamondbacks aren't going anywhere. So expect them to try to be real careful with Marte before they bring him back again. While he's out, players like Josh Rojas, Tim LaCostro, Kevin Smith will get a, all get a bit more playing time. Uh, Castellanos has been shuffling between Reno and Phoenix this season. With the Diamondbacks, he's pitched decently. 3.24 ERA, 4.19 XERA, 70 BPB. No indication he's likely to be lose, used in high leverage situations this time around. And as such, he's not a strong candidate for most fantasy rosters. The, the guy that interests me out of that bunch, Nick, is uh, Pavin Smith. He's got just over 300 plate appearances this year, uh, six homers, 39 runs scored, uh, 27 RBIs. But what really interests me here, Nick, is when you look at his contact rate, it's over 80% for the year, which is borderline miraculous in this day and age of, of high strikeouts. And it was even better in the minor league. So as he gets his feet under him, I think this guy could be a pretty good batting average help. He's hitting 270 as it is. His walk rate's only 7% this year, but it's been up around 12, 13% in the minor leagues. And again, you know, he's working his way in. It's his, really his first crack at full-time play in the big leagues. I think Pavin Smith is pretty interesting from a wide variety of, of viewpoints. And if you're looking for help, I think Pavin Smith should at least be on your radar. Yeah, I think it's, Pavin Smith is worth looking at at this point, especially with the increased pain time that's likely to result right now. I mean, he was uh, suddenly going to get squeezed with Marte back, but now it looks like he'll be in the lineup uh, very, very frequently. And as you said, uh, making good contact, uh, certainly a guy that may be worth a shot.
And for people who aren't familiar with him, he's a 25-year-old guy, plays mostly first base, but also a little bit of outfield. And uh, like I said, give him a look, at least, if you're thinking of uh, improving your team or trying to find a replacement. Uh, Speaking of finding replacements, anybody who's got Blake Snell on their fantasy roster is going to be looking for a replacement, although they may already have been, considering how Snell has been pitching. He was placed on the injured list on Wednesday with uh, an unspecified illness. Usually we think that means COVID, but maybe not so much anymore, about they recalled a right-hander, Miguel Diaz, from AAA. What's going to go on in San Diego with Snell out? Well, Snell had been scratched from his Tuesday start due to this, this illness. Now likely to be out until just before or just after the All-Star break. At the bad time for the Padres, who recently lost Dylan Lamet to the IL with shoulder inflammation. Uh, no obvious calls on how the, the Padres are going to handle this downtime other than more bullpen games as happened Tuesday. Uh, return of Wyan Weathers from AAA El Paso. Uh, that's likely to happen. He's, in fact, I think, scheduled to start a game soon. Um, it's, it's a rough time for the Padres in their rotation at the moment. Well, they still have Darvish and Musgrove, I guess, at the top of their rotation. Snell was kind of holding down that number three role. Uh, guess we've got to bump up the playing time expectations for Chris Paddock, whom we'll talk about in a second, and Ryan Weathers, who's back. Right, very definitely bump up the playing time expectations for both of those guys. And as you said, we'll talk about Paddock uh, in just a minute. And uh, Mackenzie Gore still lurking in the weeds there. Very definitely. Guy to keep an eye on. And finally, uh, Nick, we like to talk about the speculator column at BaseballHQ.com. Ryan Bloomfield does a a really good job there. Uh, He's got a column called uh, Second Half All-Stars, and uh, one of the guys he looked at, as I mentioned, is Chris Paddock of the San Diego Padres. It's been really really another disappointment for Chris Paddock so far. Easily meets uh, single-digit value so far this year, 4.64 ERA. That only got worse in June at 5.59. And a deeper dive gives us uh, some reason for hope, however. Paddock is missing more bats than ever before. 14% swinging strike rate, 16% in June, uh, without without giving up his usual control. So he's traditionally been just a two-pitch guy, but he's been mixing in his curveball more often since April. Uh, the curve isn't necessarily a dominant pitch for Paddock, but it's not bad. Uh, 14% swinging strike rate, 46-4% ground ball rate. Gives hitters something to think about while sitting on the fastball and the changeup. If Paddock can carry any semblance of June's skill growth, in June, a 2.82 XCRA, 209 BPB over four starts into the second half. Uh, looks like he could be worth a good speculation at this point as a potential uh, 2019 performance from here on out. I was intrigued when uh, I saw the chart that Ryan included in this coverage. Uh, Chris Paddock was not throwing the curveball at all earlier this year, and it's kind of zigzagged more or less upward like the uh, climbing up the Rocky Mountains from the east to the west, I guess, to a peak of over 15% in a start he had in mid-June. And it's settled back down to sort of 10%. But, of course, we know that it's really important when you're going that third time through the batting order to have a third pitch that you can show them that they haven't already seen a couple of times. And uh, that may help Chris Paddock. Uh, Another name on Ryan Bloomfield's list of potential second-half all-star speculations, Colorado outfielder Charlie Blackman used to be a no-brainer, not so much. Yeah, it's been a tough go for Charlie Blackburn so far this season. I this is his age thirty-five season, two fifty-six batting average, four homers, no stolen bases. Uh, can he turn it around in the second half? The case for the second half turnaround. 
Blackman's plate skills, 12% walk rate, 84% contact rate, are rock solid, despite a career low 29% hit percentage. So recent power baseline, 14% home run per fly from 2018 to 2020, far better than what we've seen this season, only 5% home run per fly rate. And we all know that Coors Field can be like what that can be like in the summer months. So Blackman will need to correct his extreme ground ball rate to get, get there, but uh, stolen base game is long gone, but don't cut him out just yet. He's a guy with a lot of experience, uh, and things are heating up in Coors. Uh, certainly couldn't have a very good second half. In playing time tomorrow, Dan Marcus covers the National League Central, and one of the items Dan covered is the Milwaukee Brewers, who for the longest time were trying to figure out how to get their infield nailed down, and all of a sudden it looks very stable. It does, it does indeed at the, at the moment, at least uh, Dating back to the offseason, we've looked at the, the left side of that infield, and that's been a problem. Third base, a problem since uh, Mike Moustakas left. Shortstop since the lack of development of Orlando Arcia. Uh, but in the last month, all of that's changed with uh, Luis Urias and Willie Adams formed a very strong uh, duo on the at, at, uh, at second base, third base, shortstop for the Brewers. Urias, we, we wondered earlier, we've talked about him before, how he fit in with the rest of the Brewers lineup. And nearly immediately, he made that question obsolete as he's gone to post his best month as a pro in June. In particular, managed to combine both a contact-heavy approach, 75% contact rate, without sacrificing power. A 101 power index, with very strong overall results, a 43 BPV, something that was recently highlighted by Greg Pyron in his Fact Loose column. Uh, zooming out beyond the one-month sample, it certainly appears that Urias is beginning to deliver on his prospect profile that was centered on his ability to make contact and to line the ball over the field. Uh, 111.5 maximum exit velocity, 90% barrel rate. I remember that uh, Greg also uh, looked at the other recent trade acquisition in Milwaukee, Willie Adamas. Yes, uh, Willie Adamas is uh, noted by Greg that uh, he's openly discussed his struggles to pick the ball up out of the pitcher's glove at Tropicana Field as a member of the Rays. And while it's difficult to separate convenient narrative as opposed to a legitimate explanation for his struggles, Adamas has certainly backed up his comments by hitting 286, 351, 504, across 131 plate appearances since he was traded to Milwaukee. And in another playing time tomorrow column, Alanda Leonardis looks at the National League East division, and he opened up this particular column by talking about uh, Atlanta starting pitcher Kyle Muller. And the question that he asked, and the question that a lot of fantasy managers have asked, is Kyle Muller for real? Yeah, Kyle Muller slipped into the Atlanta rotation for a spot start on June 21st. And pitched well enough, four innings pitched, a one earned run, to earn a second start. And after a June 27th appearance against Cincinnati, five innings pitched, one earned run, one hit, brother, no earned run, two walks, nine strikeouts. Fantasy managers kind of jumped on him like a tick jumping on a, on a plump dog's butt. But that last start obviously raised some hopes. But what about the things moving forward? Uh, are we just seeing a fluke here? Muller showed uh, some fancy bat missing skills in triple a before his call up 28.9 percent strikeout rate the best of his major minor league career besides his 2016 rookie level debut on the strength of a solid high spin fastball 94.5 velocity and a four pick pitch the problem with muller has been command uh, matthew st germain wrote him in call-ups and struck a memorable note of caution with regard to muller's ability to throw strikes despite his stuff taking off the command control means remains raw and when he misses it can be of uh, the euchre sardonic uh, just a bit outside variety stuff gets you noticed no doubt 
and it can help uh, paper over command deficiency for a while. But when pitcher is shouldering a starter's load, the volume of innings eventually reveals whatever cracks lie beneath the surface. Just as swing and miss ability gets you noticed, lack of command has been the ruin of many a poor boy. Muller's 13.4% walk rate over 31.1 innings pitched at Triple A Gwinnett 2021. Add that to his 14.5% mark in 2019, over 111 innings pitched. Those paint a very clear picture that this promising 23-year-old is still prone to bouts of pronounced wildness. Muller has the fifth spot for now, probably for the next few weeks. A buy-in for the swinging strike rate, 16.7%. Hope for the best. But don't be surprised by the inevitable uh, PQS just starts because of poor command. Yeah, it's going to be, uh, what is that Rudyard Kipling poem? Uh, if you can cope with tr- or meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two imposters just the same, this is kind of uh, something I think you're going to have to do if you want to have Kyle Muller on your roster is be prepared to celebrate when you get those terrific starts and be prepared to just live with the ones that are not so terrific and maybe consider him for not streaming into games against tough offenses, especially ones that know how to command the plate. Yeah, that very there definitely makes sense. I mean, not the kind of guy you want to start if somebody is going to you've got an offense that doesn't swing a lot and, and uh, has very good plate discipline. All right, Nick, a very interesting week. We'll catch up with you again in a week's time. All right, thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and covers the National League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Over we go to the American League and Baseball HQ co-general manager and columnist Ray Murphy. Ray, welcome back to the show. Happy July, PD. Yeah, it's Canada Day uh, yesterday. It was a lot of fun, spare ribs on the barbie, and uh, there's been some reduction in the amount of fireworks because uh, this this year's Canada Day has coincided with some very sad news uh, about uh, there's a phenomenon in Canada called the residential schools, which is a long time ago. Um, they put a lot of Aboriginal kids in these schools that were mostly run by churches, to uh, deculturalize them and move them into the mainstream culture, but instead it just turned out to be a nightmare of, of bad actions, and now they're finding a whole bunch of unmarked graves of kids. They've found more than a 1,000. Yeah. That kind of has put a damper on the celebration, and a lot of people are saying, I'm not going to set off any fireworks this year. Instead, there's candlelight vigils and that kind of thing. So, uh, yeah, a bit of sad news. Tough to chest up and feel great about your country in a time like that, right? Yeah, sometimes. It, it really is. Yeah. It's been a um, it's been quite a story here, and uh, it's been cause for a lot of soul-searching. Um, on to happier notes. Uh, well, not happier notes, I guess, for uh, Jose Abreu. He left the game early Sunday because of a bruised knee. Uh, they had x-rays right away that said it wasn't broken, which is probably good. He got hit by a pitch. And uh, they say he's day-to-day, but that's only for now. Matt Cederholm at Baseball HQ's Big Hurt column, the injury analysis column, says not so fast. This could be worse than it looks. Let's not assume that Abreu will be right, right away back. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. You know, the, the I was going to say knee-jerk reaction, but since he got hit in the <laughs> knee, that's probably not the right way to go here. Uh, but, you know, the, the, the first reaction when you hear guy left the game, x-ray is negative, you're like, all right, fine, a few days. But, you know, Matt's kind of sounding the alarm here and saying that, you know, this could be worse and not just because of the looming all-star break and the chance, you know, we're going to see a lot of people get put on the DL in the next few days and hear that they'll be out for the till the all-star break, but it's just, you know, eight or nine days away now. But, uh, you know, what, Matt's pointing out here is that you know that initial X-ray, especially with swelling, et cetera, may not detect a bone bruise, and a bone bruise in that spot is enough that it could knock him out for 
a couple of weeks. You know, he threw a, a worst case three to five week estimate on it, even without anything worse than a bone bruise. So that's that's clearly potentially going all the way to the other side of the All Star break. So worth watching here. And if you've got a Brayu on your roster and you're taking the day to day advice and just you know leaving him in there and you know keeping him active for the weekend and hoping he pops up on Saturday and Sunday, you know maybe not so fast. Maybe deploy somebody else there. Yeah, I, I thought uh, three to five weeks kind of sounded like the minimum, and and it could be as long as seven or eight, depending on if that bone bruise diagnosis happens to come through. So somebody's got to play first base in Chicago. Boy, what a lot of injuries they've had this year. Uh, who do you think uh, lines up to get the playing time? Should Abreu have an extended time off the roster? And even for the three to five weeks that we assume he's gonna gonna have off the roster, even if uh, all goes as well as it can. Yeah, it's uh, you know it's sort of the usual suspects here. You know, the, the first one that comes to mind is Andrew Vaughn, who uh, he had a home run the other night, but he's been struggling. He's hitting just a tick over two hundred. Uh, and you know, they, if they don't want to go there, maybe they try your Mercedes over there. But Mercedes has been trending downward. I mean, there was the only place he could trend after that eight for eight start. But you know, his <laughs> numbers are uh, his 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 numbers are you know regressing toward his. Uh, you know, what we would more have expected from a journeyman backup catcher utility hitter as opposed to the, the the splash he made in April. So, I you know, if you dig even deeper, maybe there's some Yasmani Grandal over at first base and Zach Collins catching. You know, th- there are no great options here, but, you know, you'll probably see, I would say, if it is three to five weeks or worse for Abreu, I would say on, the, on a night-to-night basis, you'll, you'll see all of the above, I guess. In Houston, the Astros placed right-hander Jose Urquidy on the 10-day IL on Wednesday. He's got a shoulder discomfort, not the first time this season for that. The team also recalled left-hander Ryan Hartman from AAA. They designated a right-hander Francis Martez to AAA. Uh, Jock Thompson covered the story for playing time today. Who's going to get Urquidy's innings? Yeah, you hit on the key with Urquidy there that it's not the first time for the shoulder, so you know, just this year. So we've got to be careful that this is again, not one of these just putting on the, on the DL for a week until the all-star break. And I don't think it's at all assured that Urquidy will be uh, teed up to go back into the rotation on the other side of the break. They were running a six man rotation for the last couple of turns. So between that and off days, it's not, there's not necessarily anybody who's going to, uh, you know, jump into the rotation here or see a role expansion. Hartman, the call-up, is a you know middle reliever who, on our prospect scale, we rate as a five B, which is a which is a bulk guy essentially. So, you know, he's not likely to work at high leverage, and the rotation will probably just f- sort of fly in the missing man formation until <laughs> until at least after the All Star break when they have to make some uh, some decisions about uh, whether he can be ready or if they need to do something else. And if there's any good news to be had here, Jock Thompson did report that while the discomfort was in the shoulder, which uh, was a repeat of what happened earlier this season, it's not in quite the same part of the shoulder. And now that I say it to myself, I wonder if that's good news or bad news, because if the <laughs> right. if the discomfort's moving around in there, maybe that's not such a good thing. As you started to say good news, I was going to say, please don't say it's not his throwing shoulder, because that's that's really the only good news that if it was the other arm, right? That's right. Anything in the, anything in the throwing shoulder, I think we have to treat with uh, some skepticism and concern. Well, speaking of pitchers, uh, the White Sox activated Michael Kopech from the 10-day IL on Wednesday. He'd been suffering from a hamstring pull, and they recall left-hander Jace Fry as well. Uh, what's going on here? Uh, Rick Green with playing time today. There's got to be some playing time moves going on now. 
Yeah, sort of a revolving door in the uh, bullpen there. Remember from before Kubik went out, he had been you know, pretty electric in a uh, multi-inning reliever role, and he'll go back into that role for now. Uh, and Aaron Bummer and Evan Marshall both ended up on the DL here, so that's how Kopik and Fry are going to fill into the bullpen. doesn't necessarily mean the roles are going to be the same because Bummer's basically been you know, one of the primary setup men, and I, I don't expect you'll see Kopik in that role. As I said, he's more being had in previous stint had been used in a in a multi inning role, even had a couple of a couple of short starts. So we'll probably see him pitching once or twice a week for three plus innings at a time. And in this age when you know it's really hard to a find starting pitching and b we're evaluating starting pitching in this uh, post sticky stuff era and seeing guys who are really struggling. I think uh, I, I I think deploying a guy like Kopech, even though he's not a nominal starter is a very viable strategy, especially in the near term as we're trying to figure out what pitchers are being affected by uh, the lack of sticky tack and which ones aren't. So, uh, you know, if Kopech somehow was available in your league after he went on the DL, I would be very interested in deploying him. It's been an injury year from hell for the White Sox, and their bullpen has taken a couple of blows recently as well with Aaron Bummer and Evan Marshall also having hit the IL. There seems like there's lots of opportunities in, in Chicago for some, uh, the kind of relievers you like in, in deeper leagues. However, they're starting to run out of them. And the, the question <laughs> right. is, is there anybody left in Chicago that we should be looking at and going, eh, maybe, you know, those high leverage roles, you get some vulture wins, maybe get some decent ratios. But I, when I look at the list, I just don't see anybody that jumps out at me and says, grab me, grab me. Yeah, I think I, I, think I pretty much agree with you. There, there are arms I like, but the ones that I like aren't, you know, of the ones that are still standing, you know, aren't necessarily pitching well Garrett Crochet comes to mind right. and you know his number his numbers for the season are you know just fine. He's got a three ERA and he's striking he's got twenty-nine strikeouts in twenty-four innings, but he's walked fifteen guys in those twenty-four innings and his whip is one and a half. I mean, that's not the you know, if if one of the first things you're looking for in a reliever while you're trolling for those vulture wins is you know the the vaunted ratio stabilization, you know, this is the opposite of that. So yeah, it's hard it's getting hard to find uh, you know, safe havens here and uh, you know, I would imagine Tony LaRusso is losing sleep over these same issues. Well, and there is some stability. Unfortunately, it's stability of a 1.4 whip. <laughs> and uh, you yeah. can count on that game in and game out, but it's, that's still awesome. not necessarily good news. Uh, in Kansas City, Ray, we've been joking back and forth the last couple of weeks that we need to have a dedicated segment to Edward Olivares, uh, who could be, if not a baseball champion, perhaps a yo-yo champion. He's up and down more often than the proverbial toy. Uh, Kansas City has... Designated for assignment, Kelvin Gutierrez, who got a cup of coffee. Emmanuel Rivera was up. Now he's hurt. So it looks like Olivares is back in the outfield. Uh, Hunter Dozier over to third base. What are we to make of all of this? And uh, how long is it before Edward Olivares is back in the minors? Well, you know, he, he may, this is a, uh, it's not a serious injury for Rivera. I think it's another one of these, one of these bruise situations. So this might just be the one week until the all-star break. But, uh, you know, in between these, uh, Frequent flyer miles to AAA. Olivares is now seven for twenty-six on the season. He's at two sixty-nine uh, with a stolen base, no home runs yet. Uh, you know, hardly enough of a sample size to pass any judgment on. But maybe you know, if if he gets a week's worth of playing time here, he may very well double those twenty-six at bats. So we'll uh, we'll we'll check back in for next week's updates with the as the sample size grows and see if he's uh, 
sticking sticking a claim to having a job after the All-Star break or not. I was actually thinking of putting together a, uh, just a little intro for the Edward Oliveira's segment, and I thought as soon as I do that, that'll be the last time we hear of him ever, you know, so I'm not going to waste the time. It, it really should be sponsored by, like, some, you know, minor Midwestern airline that flies between, like, Omaha, <laughs> That's right, Omaha yeah. and Kansas City, right? That's right. <laughs> Omaha bus company, maybe. Hey, perfect. <laughs> <laughs> on, on Tuesday, a little bit of a surprise. Uh, Toronto Blue Jays made a trade with the Miami Marlins. Uh, Toronto sends infielder Joe Panic and minor league right-hander Andrew McInvale to Miami, and they get back injured outfielder Corey Dickerson and right-handed reliever Adam Simber. I think there's a little bit of cash going back and forth to even out the salaries. Uh, this all happened earlier this week. Uh, Phil Hertz covers for playing time today, but my first question to you, Ray, is why would the Jays trade for yet another outfielder when they've got so many? I mean, I was hoping you would explain this to me as the local Toronto guy, because I'm as mystified as you are. I, I read it much the same way that Panic and Dickerson are, you know, both in the deal for salary purposes, and the Jays bullpen has been a revolving door, so adding the reliever makes some sense. But yeah, I, I, sure, you know, we we pointed out, I mean, correctly in playing time today, Chris Olson noted that Dickerson makes for a nice uh, platoon option in the Blue Jays outfield because he's a lefty and their outfield first base DH guys are all right-handed. But, I mean, true, but does that mean that on any given day, just because he's left, there's a right-handed pitcher on the mound, I would rather start Corey Dickerson than, you know, Randall Gritchuk or Lourdes Gurriel or George Springer or any of those guys? You know, to me, the answer is no. Uh, so maybe there's... Uh, Maybe there are some spot starts, and you know, he, Dickerson could carve out a couple of games a week if he's healthy. But this just seemed like shuffling deck chairs to me. Yeah, when I first saw it, I thought uh, the, the initial analysis was pretty much what you were saying in the media up here in the Toronto, Greater Toronto area, and. I thought to myself, you know, I know that the Jays lineup is very right-handed. I think uh, I was watching the other night and they only had one left-handed hitter and he was hitting eighth or seventh or eighth in the lineup, but it's Biggio, and all the rest of them are right-handed, but it doesn't seem to be slowing them down much. They, I was going <laughs> to say, it's very right-handed and very good. <laughs> yeah, very, very productive. So subsequent to the initial, of course, everybody has to come up with a hot take immediately after the trade, especially where the Blue Jays are concerned here in Ontario. But when cooler minds started to prevail, there was a suggestion that maybe what they really wanted here was Adam Simber. They've been having a lot of bullpen trouble and they, they needed somebody and, and Simber's got a bit of a track record and they've probably seen him a little bit when he was with Cleveland and, and maybe thought well of him. And maybe Dickerson was just the price they had to pay to get Simber. You know, Miami says, we'll give you Simber, but you got to take Dickerson off our hands and give us some kind of thing to even it out like a fantasy trade. And so Joe Panic, who was really surplus to needs in Toronto because they have uh, Espinosa and, and not that many needs for infielders anyway. they got a pretty good infield as well. So maybe it's just one of those things where you want my asset, you got to take my dud. Yeah, that sounds right. And I think you're right that from the Jays' perspective, Simber is the one that actually meets a need there. Um, I haven't gone in, I, I meant to do this, but I haven't actually gone and looked at the salaries. But it, it also, along the same lines, it occurred to me that the uh, you know, the, the Marlins have had a bunch of problems in their infield, and maybe they had a legit interest or need for panic. So if they asked the Jays for him but didn't want to take on the salary that comes with him, then Dickerson is essentially just the salary offset for panic. Again, I haven't gone and verified that, but that was – you know, along the same lines, kind of what I was thinking. But I, 
it, it, back to Dickerson, it's hard to imagine that he's going to play a significant role in this lineup because this lineup is so was so good before he even got here. And yeah, Simber's going to slot into that bullpen, and given the uh, churn they've had in that bullpen, any live arm is uh, you know is going to be an asset for them. Yes, that's pretty much what I thought. And Dickerson's not like completely pointless. It will be nice for them perhaps to have a left-handed pinch hitter uh, as they go down the stretch, and they're maybe not so uh, vulnerable to right-handers on the mound in late-game situations. Having said that, as I said earlier, who's he going to hit for? <laughs> you know, yeah, Reese McGuire, right? <laughs> I guess, yeah, that's that's pretty much it. Uh, one, of, one of the catchers, and and Alejandro Kirk's supposed to be coming back, so that may be a situation that doesn't even so come maybe up not that even. often. Yeah. Moving along, uh, Josh Naylor had a terrible injury. Speaking of Canada Day, a Canadian kid, and he got into a collision, and it was ghastly to look at uh, in Cleveland. They've got Fran Mil Reyes, however, coming back. They recalled Oscar Mercado. They got Bradley Zimmer. What's going on in that Cleveland outfield? And the Cleveland's playing really well. Yeah, that was a real blow to them because, as we've chronicled multiple times here, you know that outfield is the uh, you know the the weak part of their team of their offense to begin with and Naylor you know wasn't lighting the world on fire but he was relatively productive compared to Bradley Zimmer, Oscar Mercado, Jordan Luplo, the cast of thousands that have been revolving through there uh so to lose Naylor is a blow uh in terms of power production Reyes coming back certainly helps uh he'll uh he'll slide primarily to the DH role they they're smart enough to not put him in the outfield on a regular basis uh but in terms of filling in for Naylor in the outfield you know, Mercado came back up after uh, you know being sent down early in the season. Bradley Zimmer's been on the roster in a fourth, fifth outfielder role, and there's an there's an expanded opportunity for him. It's going to be a bake off, I think. You know, neither one has shown much with the bat. It's been going back to 2019 since we've seen anything from Mercado in the majors, anything anything useful in Zimmer. I think we've never seen it in the majors. So, uh, boy, for another in another team in another situation, you'd say it's a prime opportunity for them to. Go outside the org and you know bring in a uh, midseason acquisition since they know Naylor is out for the entire year. But given the uh, you know the way the Indians run things, I don't know whether that's actually going to happen. One of our favorite columns at BaseballHQ.com, Ray, is Doug Dennis's Bullpen Buyer's Guide. He does a fantastic job monitoring the bullpens in all 30 major league teams and, and finding not just the guy who's closing, but sometimes the guy who should be closing. And more often than not, it's really surprising how often Doug will say, here's the three guys who are, you know, one, two, three in the bullpen order. Here's the guy you want. And if you get the guy you want, you end up with all the saves. So it's a really terrific column. And his most recent one was headline job shares and speculating. So back to the situations that we could call messy, like maybe in Seattle, let's start there. Perhaps their two best relief pitchers, Doug says, are the only ones in the bullpen who don't have any saves. It, it's really fascinating. Isn't it? I just love the pers- perspective that Doug bring, brings to these, uh, particularly to these quagmire bullpens, because I personally just find them frustrating. And Doug just, you know, brings a, such a logical approach to it, and you know, kind of works the problem, and you know, get, and really gives us the, uh, you know, cuts through it, and as you said, very often, you know, settles on the right guy or the one you want to own for a skills perspective, and the saves frequently follow. But boy, Seattle is a mess. Uh, you know, it's. It was a mess while Kendall Graveman was on the IL with COVID, and now Graveman's back, and it looks like he's regaining his form and settling back in. But there are a lot of other options here as 
uh, as Doug points out. Drew Steckenrider has pitched pretty well. Uh, you know, one, one metric that Doug likes to look at a lot uh, is the leverage index, which kind of measures how ba- how serious a situation these relievers get brought into, and basically who has the man- manager's confidence. Steckenrider is scoring very highly on that metric, uh, and JT Chargois and Paul Sewell are both also getting a ton of leverage and pitching well in those leverage situations. So, I mean, there are three names behind Graveman there, none of which are uh, Rafael Montero or the you know Steckenrider has one save. Chardois and Sewell have zero. So uh, if that job continues to turn over, we might this might end up being another place where by sometime in the second half, you know, there are eight or nine relievers in this bullpen who have a save. And I noticed you didn't mention Keenan Middleton, uh, who also has a save. I remember when he got the save, there was quite a fab rush because everybody's rushing out and yep. saying, let's go get Keenan Middleton. Turned out not to be such a swell idea, 771 ERA. I think his whip is right around two. Whereas Chargeois and Suald, you mentioned, uh, gosh, these whip, 0. 0.69, 0. 0.92. <laughs> that's, that's the kind of decimals that will there's help. A, there's, a step, there's a stabilization, right? That's and the, you know, the, the funny thing about um, you know getting back to what Doug does so well here is the leverage, putting the skills aside, the leverage index number showed that Middleton was you know, not being used in high leverage situations. And really, you know, yeah, he got a save or two on a night, a save on a night when, uh, you know, I, I, I think the bullpen was just heavily worked. Graven was out and, uh, you know, it was an odd game as I remember, but, uh, you know, the leverage index said that like he was, you know, he's not trusted in that bullpen to the same degree that basically all of these other guys are. Another messy bullpen in Baltimore where Paul Fry has been iffy is what the term that uh, Doug Dennis used. Cole Sulser is pitching pretty well. Tanner Scott, a left-hander's pretty well found his command lately, but Doug says their best reliever has been still somebody else. So who does Doug like in Baltimore? Yeah, the, the, this, this is one that sent me scurrying to player link for more information about Tyler Wells, uh, who in 12 innings has a uh, 247 XERA. Uh, pretty strong leverage index, and uh, you know, looks like he's kind of climbing the bullpen pecking order here. You know, Scott, as we know, has good skills. That's not a surprise. And Doug says he, you know, it looks like he's pitching better and better. But you know, he is left-handed too, and that always ends up being a drag on closer possibilities. But uh, Tyler Wells, I mean, eight walks and forty-five strikeouts in thirty-six innings. Uh, you know, that's it, it's uh, even better than the uh, three seventy-nine ERA says it is with. Uh, you know, that's the kind of uh, command and, you know, the 101 whip in particular is uh, is what we're looking for here. So he could be creeping into uh, later and later situations here. Having said that, Doug himself says right now he'd speculate on Sulcer as the guy, uh, which is interesting because his leverage index is under one. So it's not like Baltimore's throwing him out there. However, when I was looking at the list, I noticed that the highest leverage is going to Scott, the left-hander, but it's only 1.14. So I think the situation here, though, those numbers tell me is there's not a lot of high leverage situations in Baltimore. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And the other, the other takeaway I had here is who was not mentioned. And it's the, uh, you know, closer to the future for years and years now, Hunter Harvey who is, you know, back in this bullpen and working back from injury, but, you know, hasn't looked great so far. And there are, you know, these three relievers who are all, you know, pitching better than him. So if you're, if you were sitting on Hunter Harvey for name recognition or the, oh my goodness, he has to be a closer someday factor, you know, there, there are better places to speculate, not just overall, but in this particular bullpen. 
I found out the other day Hunter Harvey is Matt Harvey's son. Matt Harvey yeah. used to be a closer, I think, in Los Angeles. Uh, for the yeah, Angels he was an Angel, I think, ago. for a long time. Yep. I, I seem to remember having had him on a roster or two back in the day. Uh, Detroit has three relievers with two saves apiece over the last month or so. Michael Fulmer, Jose Cisnero, and Gregory Soto. And a lot of these names, all three of them, have been the subject of some speculation and fabbing and stuff. And they've all been pretty good the last month, especially Cisneros getting a lot of the leverage. But Fulmer was out with an injury, and he was just getting ramped back up. Now he's back on the IL. He had some kind of neck issue, a cervical spine issue, which is more common in pitchers, I found out the other day, than you might expect because of the torque that they put on that whole system. And Detroit, Ray, has actually shown some signs of competence lately, so there might be more saves than we might first have expected, but who's going to get them? You know, I think that's a great point because I remember – maybe with you or maybe in my own research, looking at this bullpen in the preseason and a, there was almost nobody here with any good skills and B, you didn't think the Tigers were going to win more than 55 games anyway. So it was like, okay, turn the page. Who's the next team I got to look at. I don't have to worry about this, but yes, the lineup has gotten better. The rotation is holding it together on, on at least some nights and the bullpen overall has been pretty competent. So it seems to me that they want Fulmer to be the closer here. But as you say, he hasn't been able to stay healthy. He keeps going on and off the IL. In between both uh, Soto and, you know, Soto and Cisnero have been, have been effective there. And they make a nice lefty-righty tandem. If that lefty-righty tandem isn't set up in front of Fulmer, that looks like a legitimate bullpen. And if, if it, as it is now, Fulmer's on the DL, then, you know, that becomes sort of a matchup situation. But, you know, it's really interesting because it's a case where these guys are all sort of showing skills that were not at all in line with what we were expecting uh, expecting in the spring. So, uh, you know, it's just a constant reminder that in these uh, in these bullpen games, it's it's a what have you done for me lately? And we need to, uh, you know, reevaluate our preconceived notions about these guys as they uh, change their picks, pitch picks, make a mechanical tweak, whatever it is. Uh, you know, we can't just. Uh, look at somebody in the spring and say, oh, he's terrible. I don't want him because by June, he could be pitching pretty well. And finally, Ray, uh, almost every week when I talk to one of our guest expert interview subjects, including this week with Shelley Verstrait, we talked about first pitch Arizona. Is there going to be one? When is it going to be? And I keep saying, I don't know. I don't know. Ray's working on it. They're working on it. They're looking at it. And uh, some fantastic news today. Yes. So we're doing it. Uh, we were, we, we've been wanting to do it, you know, all along and, you know, we thought things were trending in that direction. The last domino we were waiting for was the Arizona fall league to actually announce that, you know, there's going to be an Arizona fall league, uh, which they've been particularly, uh, annoyingly reticent about doing, but, uh, we've reached out to a lot of contacts. We've done some Tiwi reading and we think they're going to be there, or at least we're confident enough that. Either they're going to be there or we could pull off a good event anyway. So we are opening up uh, registrations for First Pitch Arizona. Uh, they are open today. Uh, the dates are October 14th to 17th, uh, 2021, at the Sheraton Mesa Wrigleyville, which is uh, right across the street from uh, Sloan Park, the Cubs uh, facility. So we will not only be hoping there's an AFL, but we will be hoping there are a lot of games for, across the street from us. I think we're, uh, just beyond home run distance over the right field wall from the, uh, <laughs> from the property. So, uh, we're super excited, you know, tons of information to come about the program, about speakers, hopefully about games and prospects that are coming, but we'll stay tuned on that. But, uh, the doors are open and we're going to do it live, baby. 
And do you have the uh, registration, the early registration set up yet at BaseballHQ.com? Yes, it's available now. the uh, The early bird registration is two two ninety nine, and that'll be good. I don't think we've set the exact date yet, but it's going to be good through uh, through the All Star break at least, probably like July nineteenth or twentieth. So, well, you'll have uh, three weeks to get the best price and negotiate with your significant others and clear your calendar and uh, check out your flights and all of that. So, uh, yep, we're uh, we're ready to go, and we are super excited. Hotel discount. Uh, the hotel link is available uh, on the website. I actually forget the uh, price of the rooms off the top of my head, but it's you know in line with what it usually is uh, for Arizona at that time of year. That, that's that's all available on the website too. And I have to ask: Is there a fire pit? There is. I'm pretty sure there is. It's a new hotel, but uh, there's a fire pit, or we will, <laughs> or we'll start a bonfire if we have to. Right? <laughs> That's right. Throw all of our uh, 2021 uh, spreadsheets, print them out, and throw them exactly. into to get, to get the fire going. I'd be happy, uh, given the year I'm having. I'd be happy to see the back of them. We will burn our. We can all burn our bad takes. <laughs> that's right. All right, Ray. Well, that's great news. Thanks very much for helping us out. Uh, the first pitch information will be on the the homepage at baseballhq.com. Yeah, there'll be a, there's a there's a yellow and orange uh, first pitch Arizona logo on the right side of the homepage. Click on that; it'll bring you to the registration page. We've got our you know, the prices, the hotel information, the FAQs, all that stuff are up there. You can look at the if if it's if you're not familiar with what we do over this course course of this weekend, we're still uh, we're still building out the program, but we left up all the links to 2019, the last time we did this, so you can get a look at what the weekend typically looks like, and it'll look something like that again. So it's uh, it's a good reference. Well, if you need somebody to host a session, I'm your oh, man. Oh, you can, you can bet on it, my friend. All right, Ray, thanks very much for helping us out. Very exciting news, and we'll talk to you again in a week's time. Maybe there'll be a little more news about the AFL. We'll keep dripping it out, absolutely. All right, PD, thank you. Ray Murphy is a co-general manager and columnist at BaseballHQ.com. Next up, it's part two of our feature expert interview with Shelley Verstrait from Dynasty Guru and the Dynasty's Child podcast. She'll be coming to the plate for her second at-bat next on Baseball HQ Radio. They're waiting for the numbers to change. There it goes. Cal Ripken comes out, raises his arm with a cap, and here is the ovation that he gets. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm PD. Time now for part two of our feature expert interview with Shelly Verstrait from Dynasty Guru and the Dynasty's Child podcast. Shelly, welcome back to part two. Hey, I'm glad to be back. We were talking earlier about prospects, and you certainly discuss prospects at the Dynasty Guru site and when you appear in Dynasty's Child's podcast, and especially on Twitter. So let's talk about prospects and get your evaluations. On the pod recently, you and your pod mates, uh, Jake Devereaux and Jordan Rosenblum, talked about several interesting prospects. Uh, starting in San Francisco, you guys discussed a pitcher, Sam Long, and an outfielder, Elio Ramos. Long has pitched four times. He was called up in early June. Uh, 20 base runners in 20 innings, that's nice. 19 strikeouts, a lot of first pitch strikes. But 11 earned runs in 20 innings puts his ERA right around 5. What's your analysis of Sam Long and his timeline to possibly being a legitimate fantasy asset? Um, Yes, Sammy Long, he, he's kind of interesting because he kind of came out of nowhere. I think he was in the Cubs system, and he was pitching really, really well. Uh, for San Francisco's uh, AAA team uh, prior to his call-up. 
Um, and then in that first game, he came in like in the middle innings and I think he threw four innings and had like a lot of strikeouts. Um, I think that he is a really interesting flyer. Um, I love what San Francisco has done this done this year uh, for for players, both hitters and pitchers. Um, the 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 park is a really good uh, park um, uh, to pitch in. Um, but I, I I think that he's probably uh, just an interesting uh, guy to um, to use in like different type of uh, ideal like uh, hitting matchups. Um, so a uh, streamer type. Um, but yeah, he's, he's had a pretty good year, uh, so far. Meanwhile, uh, Elio Ramos, and I should spell that for people who might be interested. It's H E L I O T. He's at double a Richmond in the giant system. He's batting just two thirty six, around a 700 ish OPS. His career minor league stats has a little bit above average, I guess. What was, uh, the interest on the podcast about Elio Ramos? Yeah, Ramos, uh, he's a really, uh, interesting prospect when it comes to San Francisco, because, um, he was, I believe like a first or second round draft pick. Um, he, he brings a, a decent hit tool, a decent power tool. He runs just a little bit. So he's kind of like a good, just average type of player, if that makes sense. Um, I, I really like him. Um, my, my closest minor league park is actually Richmond. Um, so I have seen, um, I have seen Ramos quite a bit. He does have some swing emissions, issues and that has been definitely prevalent uh this year he gets into like really bad counts um but so he does have a little bit of work to do but i do think that uh at some point he'll put it all together um and be uh, a really decent outfielder uh for san francisco i mean he's not i don't think that he's going to be like an all-star or anything but i think that he can do like a 270 average uh 15 to 20 home runs uh a, you know, swipe a bag or two here and there. So just a good player, not an overly great player. Uh, Elio Ramos was a first-round pick in 2017, which raises a couple of general questions. Uh, first, how much stock should we be putting in draft pedigrees? Like, this guy was a first-round pick, I'm going to give him a longer leash to, to establish himself versus somebody who maybe was a fourth-rounder. Um, I think draft pedigree has a little bit to do with it, but with as you know, with the baseball draft, sometimes it's not best player available. It's, you know, best player who will take a lower signing bonus and will try to use the savings to sign someone else. So sometimes draft uh, someone being drafted in the first round could actually be worse than someone um, drafted in the fourth round. Uh, when it comes to Ramos, though, I, I still think that he was definitely like a first round talent that year. But he's struggled uh, with injuries like his first couple of seasons, you know, like hit by pitches um, was his big bugaboo. And he like broke some, some fingers and stuff like that uh, based on those hit by pitches. So uh, dra uh, draft pedigree does mean something, but it doesn't mean everything. So if you see someone drafted in the first round, that doesn't make them super uber great, if that makes sense. Yeah. And we all know that some teams, some organizations are better at identifying and developing prospects than other teams and organizations. So how does the fading of prospect luster differ from organization to organization and how much stock do you put in that? Yeah, I, I, there are definitely teams that I, I don't trust their develop, uh, development system. Um, I, I'm not a big fan of Colorado. Um, uh, Texas and 
Philly, uh, Texas and Philly, I just don't, I, they have trouble identifying uh, draft uh, talent in the draft. Um, but then there were other teams um, like Cleveland. Cleveland is really good with pitching. Um, same with Miami. Um, the Dodgers are just good at everything. Um, so yeah, it, I definitely look at the prospect and if they're struggling or not struggling, is that part, is that, is that reason because of their organization? Um. Okay. And the second question, actually, I suppose the third of my two questions is what kind of timeline should we be looking at for players to make progress through the minor leagues and get to the major league level? And at what point, Shelley, do you think the player just isn't likely to be the real thing as a fantasy baseball producer, just based on how long it's taking him to work his way through. Yeah. Um, I, I typically, um, hope to see like the legit, the real thing, fantasy, uh, baseball prospects. I want to see them move at least to, um, two levels per year. Um, it really depends on the team as well. Tampa usually uh, is uh, goes uh, low and slow. They go probably about a level uh, per year. Um, but that being said, I, I look for um, a lot of uh, progression during uh, during the season, um, especially around the All Star break for the minor leagues. Um, you will see a lot of prospects being moved up, and if you see an interesting prospect that is being moved up quickly. Um, that could mean the team really likes what they're doing. They're trying to um, trying to uh, get him to a higher level level that he's never seen before, so he can con- continue to um, uh, progress. Um, so, yeah, I I definitely watch um, how my prospects are moving up. And uh, I'm no f- uh, prospect expert, and I rely on people like you for my information. But I will throw in this two cents worth that I figured out a long time ago. If you see a player get promoted from one level to another in the minor leagues and his previous league's record isn't that great, you know, a guy who's hitting 250 or 260 and nonetheless gets promoted, I think that's a guy to keep an eye on because the organization is clearly ignoring the results on the field and see something that's worthwhile to, to promote. And because of the poor results, sometimes they fall off the prospect radar of the other guys that you're playing against in your fantasy league. And I think those are guys to keep a, a real close eye on. Totally agree. In the podcast, Shelley, you mentioned a Cincinnati pitcher, right-hander Graham Ashcraft, pitching in A Chattanooga, lifelong Reds fan, always curious about how the Reds are doing and how their prospects are doing. He just made his debut in A, and he certainly looked like he belonged. What can you tell us about Graham Ashcraft and why you're interested? Uh, yeah, um, I really like what Ashcraft has done this year. Um, he was a six-round pick back in 2019, um, and this is the first time that we've really seen a big um sample size from him. Um, he did pitch a little bit, um, in rookie ball, um, after he was drafted. Um, but, uh, yeah, he's just been really, really impressive. The strike route strikeouts are up. The walks are down. Um, he's not get, he wasn't really much of a guy who would really give up home runs, but he hasn't, he's got, he's given up zero home runs so far. Um, the Reds seem to really just kind of like let him go, right. He's going like five or, or six, six innings per start, which you really typically don't 
see um, in the minor leagues. And he has a good fastball slider combination. That curveball is absolutely uh, just so pretty to watch, but it is also really good as well. So he got, he has three um, average to above average pitches and his command, he's shown a little bit better command so far this year, which is also really good. So I've just been like really impressed uh, with actually a lot of Cincy pitchers, but this guy, uh, he just kind of, uh, I didn't expect to see this amount of progression from him this year. So yeah, I just wanted to kind of give him a highlight because he was, he's been really, really good. That double A debut, a complete game shutout, two hits, no walks, eight strikeouts, 12 ground ball outs. You got to like that. Uh, what would you suggest might be his uh, ETA for the big leagues? Um, I, w- I would say maybe late next year. Um, I mean, since he's already in double A, he'll probably finish the season there and he'll probably start out in triple A next year. So if there's like some type of injury or, or, or something to the, to the ribs, um, you know, starting rotation, I think that we could see him late next year. One of your pod mates, and I'm sorry, I don't remember which one mentioned a Seattle prospect, an off season international free agent signing out of Cuba named Victor Labrada. And I have to admit, this is the reason I listen to the podcast because I hear about guys like Victor Labrada. What can you tell us about him? Labrada is kind of interesting because he signed with Seattle in November of 2019, but it wasn't like official because um, COVID hit and the world uh, kind of stopped for a year. Um, so it, you know, it became official official uh, signing this year. Um, you know, he's in um, low A and he is absolutely killing it so far. He's hitting 284 with um, a 412 OBP, which is not bad. He has 11 doubles. And 17 stolen bases, uh, which is really, really good to see. So, I mean, he brings a a really interesting uh, set of tools together, uh, uh, above average power, an average hit tool, and he's really fast. Um, So I think that he'll probably be moving up relatively soon. Um, Yeah, he was just a really, really interesting guy who has hit the ground running so far. You mentioned Labrada, uh, you said a 412 on base percentage in low A, but how do you calibrate player performance in a low A league? <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it's a little bit different. Uh, you want to see a, a prospect with just, you know, eye-popping numbers. That, I mean, that's what you want to see because, I mean, obviously he's not going to have that type of OBP throughout his career, but if you see that he's absolutely killing um, a certain league. Um, I take that as either he needs to be promoted or there, there was something there, maybe not to a 412 point, but with his strikeout rate and his walk rate, it looks, it looks pretty good so far, but Staying in low A, another name that came up on the pod was an Angels outfield prospect named Kyron Paris, and he has a really odd stat line, a slugging percentage over 500 and no home runs. What was interesting to you guys about Kyron Paris and this weird, uh, with this weird stat line? Yeah, yeah, he's a really interesting guy. He was another uh, 2019 draft pick, uh, second round. Uh, I mean, he just brings an interesting combination of a uh, hit and and speed. Um, his he, he needs to kind of get a little bit more reps. I'm not sure, exactly sure if he's going to get to a lot of uh, game power, 
uh, because he hasn't really shown too much brawl power in like uh, batting practice and, uh, and stuff like that. But it's really, um, it's really about the speed. Like if he could just uh, continue to hit really well and continue to swipe bases, I mean, that's, that's really, really, really kind of what you need, especially with uh, steals just kind of going by the wayside. The Dynasty's Child podcast also has a feature called Top Podspects. This is really cool. Uh, you, you guys each nominated a prospect, then you explained briefly why you liked him, and then the three of you voted to choose the top choice amongst the three of you. I thought that was really interesting. Your nominee on the show I listened to recently was Curtis Terry, uh, a guy in the AAA level in Texas's system, uh, an unusual guy. What was it that intrigued you about Curtis Terry of Texas? Yeah, I, I've, I, I don't know. I, I've, I've liked him for a while. Um, he's just one of those guys who has always hit. Um, he kind of reminds me of your man Mercedes of this year, uh, of, uh, when he was with uh, Chicago. But he's been in like many, many other systems. But he's always hit. Like he's always had um, above one twenty weighted runs created plus, um, you know, that 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 score. Um, so he's just a, like a really interesting guy. I mean, he's hitting 320 with 13 home runs so far. Um, and Texas is, as everyone knows, um, they're not uh, playing very well right now. <laughs> so I do think that he could possibly get some first base or DH um, reps towards the end of the season. Um, and I just think that he's just going to be a guy who is going to hit home runs and put up a de- decent average. And, I don't know. I just wanted to give him uh, just like a little bit of love because it's like no one ever talks about him, but he's actually a pretty good player. I wonder why do you think it would be so late in the season? Texas has literally nothing going on, and it seems like if they, they should give this guy a chance earlier rather than later, if nothing else, then to, to have something to market. I I, I totally agree. I like I. I keep hoping that I'll see that he'll get promoted because I don't know what Texas is doing. Just give this guy a shot. Just see what happens. Cause it's not like they're really doing anything else. And by the way, on his minor league uh, record, I would looked it up uh, only 20% strikeout rate, which is really good for a guy who hits the ball as hard as he does. Uh, and a 7.3% walk rate. You'd like to see that be a little higher, but the fact that he puts the bat on the ball so regularly and seems to hit it hard augurs well for his future, I think. Uh, he's also a very big guy, and another very big guy was Jake's nominee, a Miami prospect pitcher named Yuri Perez, and that's spelled E-U-R-Y if you're looking him up. He's pitching in Florida for the delightfully named franchise the Jupiter Hammerheads in the low-A Southeast League. What can you tell us about this Hammerhead? <laughs> yeah, he he is a he's a really... Uh, uh, he's a really big guy, but in a totally different way. Like he's six eight, so he's a very, very, very tall pitcher. Um, he's extremely young for the level, and his all of his pitches have just been just amazing. And if it's a Miami pitcher, I am going to be uh, really intrigued because I love all of the Miami pitchers. I love their pitching development. But he's eighteen years old, and in twenty seven innings, um, you know he has a two three three ERA a 18% swinging strike rate um, with a 33% K rate. Uh, his walk rate is is not too bad. Um, you know, he has uh, 3.6 per nine. So that's that's not too bad, especially with someone 
as tall as he is and how young he is, uh, that fastball that he has, it's really, really, really going to play up well. It's, you know, it's an above average uh, pitch, in my opinion. Um, and then he also has a pretty good changeup. Um, and Miami loves, like, their fastball changeup guys. So I, I just really like him. He has a long way to go. Um, but what he's shown so far has been really, really impressive. You mentioned 27 innings, Shelley, and what was weird about that when I looked him up is that that's 27 innings over eight starts. What do you think they might be doing to get him so few innings given so many starts? Is he is he being an opener? Yeah, he yeah he's kind of being used as an opener, and and a lot of the lower leagues, um, especially lower leagues for Miami and Houston, they tend to piggyback their starters. Uh, to kind of keep their innings low, but then still have them start or maybe come in in the middle uh, parts so they can get more looks as a starter, quote unquote. Um, but it limits their innings. It limits their workload. Um, it gives them different parts of the lineup to attack um, and go against uh, throughout each game. So I'm not surprised to see them kind of keeping keeping them around, keeping Perez around three to four innings per start. On the podcast, you sounded a cautionary note about guys like Perez just because they're so tall. And you mentioned the difficulty they have of, of maintaining consistent mechanics. And I'm wondering if you think there's an optimal size or an optimal size range for a pitcher that he's tall enough to get that leverage advantage and reach advantage, but not so tall that his height makes it difficult to maintain consistent mechanics. Yeah, um, I think, at least for me, I like to, the pitcher is pitching well, and he's about 6'1 to 6'3, maybe 6'4. I think that is fine. But like once you get a little bit taller than that, I start to be a little bit weary um, just because of the ability. Uh, I mean, we've seen, uh, like Tyler Glass now, uh, prior to, you know, the, this last couple of years, like when he was in Pittsburgh, but he was having trouble repeating his command mechanics and that was like a, a big reason for his struggles um so again it, this is not the end all be all just because Perez is 6'8 he's going to have command issues um but there might be something that he struggles with uh later in his career and like when he moves up um so I, I was just kind of like yeah the guys that tall kind of just scare me a bit yeah, I'm old enough to remember Randy Johnson when he was pitching yeah. in Montreal, and gosh, he was overpowering. But yeah, I, sometimes I thought his most effective pitch was a warm up that sailed, you know, two feet over everybody's head and <laughs> put the fear of God into every hitter who must have stood in there, like uh, Cruck did in that uh, in that All Star appearance. Uh, Jordan Rosenblum's pick was a left-hander. Speaking of which, in the Yankees system, named Ken Waldachuk. Uh, what can you tell us about him? Yeah, Waldachuk has had an absolute amazing uh season so far um i mean when we brought him up like he had not given up a a a you know an earned run um uh, he has since he has been promoted uh to to double a his last start didn't quite go so well he kind of struggled with his with his command um but he's a really uh interesting guy i mean he's got an above average uh fastball um, and then an interesting uh, slider and changeup to kind of play off the fastball. Um, I, I, I'm not sure if um, if he will be like 
a, a really, really good starter because he kind of came out of nowhere. I need to see it a little bit longer. Um, but the Yankees are really good at developing pitchers. Um, I, I wish that they were a little bit better at developing starters. Like they're really good at developing relievers. So I'm not exactly sure if this guy is actually going to be a starter or reliever long term. But what he's shown so far this year uh, is really, really encouraging. Another process question, Shelley. Uh, we talked earlier about guys being moved up and and the pace of it and that and that, but we expect a guy moving up a level to not necessarily keep performing right away at the same standard he had set in the previous lower level. But how long do we give him that mulligan on his promotion before we start expecting a, a return to the kind of performance that got us interested in the first place? Yeah, uh, for like a starting pitcher, like I'll give them like two or three starts uh, to kind of as a mulligan, you know, like, like, like it's like, uh, like with Waldachuk, like he struggled, he was good in his first start, but then as his second start, he had trouble with his command and he got hit around a bit. Um, so, I mean, I give him a little bit of a pass because it's uh, going from high A to double A is one of the most difficult transitions Um prospects so I would definitely give um, pitchers a couple starts and the same thing with hitters like I'll give them you know maybe a couple weeks to get their you know get their legs underneath them and get because yeah moving up levels is extremely hard so um, so I give starters about three starts um, and then hitters about you know a couple weeks you also have a really active Twitter account talking about prospects, Shelly. Uh, it's at ShellyV underscore 643, which I presume is a reference to a 643 double play and not a June of 1943 birthday. <laughs> yes, that is true. <laughs> let's look at some of your recent tweets. Uh, you talk about guys' performances from the day before, basically, and you tweet them out because you found them interesting. On June 26th, the Bobby Witt Jr. top prospect in Kansas City went four for four with two runs, five RBIs, one home run. What do you think Bobby Witt's chances are of playing in Kansas City this season, which he really should? Um, as much as I want to see him, I, I don't think that Kansas City um, is really going to uh, promote him this year. Because, uh, I mean, he's not on the, the 40-man roster yet, so they would have to make a uh, 40-man roster move there. Um, maybe if Kansas City was a little bit more competitive like they were towards the beginning of the season, it might be a different story. Um, but there are some guys in AAA who um, have been performing well, um, uh, Gabriel Cancel and uh, some other guys that will probably make their debut prior before before him. Um, as much as I love Bobby Witt, he's a, definitely he's extremely young, so... I, I just don't think that we see him this year, sadly. I've been hearing a lot about Baltimore right-hander Grayson Rodriguez, and he made his double-A debut earlier this month, looked pretty dominating. And then on June 26, he had an outing that you uh, noticed and brought to the attention of your Twitter followers. What was it about that outing that caught your eye? Um, I think this was his second start in double-A. And again, I mean, he only went five innings, but he limited the walks. He only had one walk, only gave up one hit and eight strikeouts. Like it was dominant. And this, that particular stat line was what we had seen in high A. So seeing um, that, that stat line, seeing that stat line again, 
right? In, in a in a higher, more competitive level. I just I just absolutely loved it because I think Grayson Rodriguez is probably my second highest rated pitching prospect. Um, I I really like I like his his talent. Uh, I think that he's going to be a really 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 good pitcher. It just kind of stinks that he has to pitch in Camden because that's not easy. Who's your first highest? Um, it's still uh, Mackenzie Gore. Um, I probably need to relook at that, but I still believe in the talent um, of what I had seen prior. I looked at Rodriguez's uh, game logs, and I see that he gets to five innings a lot and then gets taken out of the games. Is there anything we should read into that? No, no, I don't I don't think so. Um, I, I have noticed that Baltimore has done that with a lot of their starting pitchers. So I think it's just like an organizational thing where they're just having him either get to a certain pitch amount or just five innings. So I think it's just an organization thing. Your June 27th review looked at Yankees first base DH, Chris Gittens. I think you guys talked about him on the pod too, Gittens, Kittens, Mittens, jokes and stuff. He had a <laughs> brief call up to the big leagues and he was back in AAA and had a pretty terrific game. What did you see? Uh, I I pretty much saw what I had seen prior to his call up. Um, he is just absolutely destroying the ball in AAA. Um, he hit... Uh, two home runs in that particular game had eight RBI. Um, so he's just, I, I he's just smashing the ball again. Um, I don't, I, I, I'm afraid that he's probably more of a quad A type of guy. Um, because he really did struggle when he was initially called up. Um, but it was just really good to see that, yeah, he can still hit. It's just the major league pitching he needs to figure out. Boy, have we said that about a lot of people over the years. Uh, lots of buzz about Tampa right-handed pitching prospect Shane Baz. What did he do in his AAA game on June 27th, and what should we think about his chances of promotion? Shane Baz has is definitely a guy who has absolutely uh, blown my mind and changed my opinion on him this year. Um, I had always thought that he was going to be a reliever because he just had uh, he struggled with with walks and his command, uh, but not this year. And especially in that stat line, he went five innings, struck out 10, walked none, and only gave up two hits. What he has done this year has just, like I said, absolutely blown my mind. I actually, I, I moved him from a reliever to, uh, you know, a number three upside of number two type starter. Uh, I'm really, really excited with just the progression uh, with his command this year. It's just, it's, a, it's so good to see. I looked at his line in the minor leagues, uh, around 40% strikeout percentage, around 3% walk rate. So boy, that that's getting the job done. Of course, the risk in having uh, a Tampa pitching prospect in your minor league system for fantasy purposes is they're very circumspect about uh, fast promotions for their minor league pitchers. Yep. From Monday of this week, you spotlighted Seattle first base outfielder Jose Marmalejos. He's been in the big leagues this year. What did he do to catch your eye? Um, I've always had a soft spot for Jose Marmalejos uh, because in my when I was writing for Prospects 1500s, so my first ever like really writing gig, I was writing about Nationals prospects, and Jose Marmalejos um, was one of uh, one of the guys that I had just kind of fell in love with uh, Washington system is, is not that great. Um, and 
you know, hitting hitting two home runs, going two for four. I just I just really, really I just really like him. I don't think that he has a future really in Seattle because he's really like a DH outfielder, but they have a lot of guys in the outfield currently who are much better and they have guys coming up like uh Kalinic, uh, uh Julio Rodriguez. So I don't really know if he has a future with the with Seattle, but maybe another team um can pick him up. But you know, he has the he has the ability to be um a platoon outfielder with a little bit of pop. So I've always just kind of liked him. He has around 200 plate appearances at the major league level, and he's hitting 177 over that time uh, with yeah. 355 slugging percentage, so it's not that great. Uh, on the pitching side in that tweet, you had a couple of names. First, Jack Leiter of Vanderbilt had his last start uh, for Vanderbilt in the College World Series. He wasn't as terrific as usual, but where is Jack Leiter in your dynasty rankings right around now? Yeah, um, that's a really good question. So in dynasty rankings, I think that he whenever he does get drafted, he would probably be in the top 120. Um, I'm a little bit concerned about his size. He's only six foot. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I really like uh, the, the talent. And I mean, the last couple of mock drafts, he's being projected uh, to my Boston Red Sox, which I am very excited about because we really need some, some pitching help. So uh, yeah, Jack Leiter is going to be a really, really uh, fun guy to watch as he moves uh, through the minor leagues. What about his Vanderbilt teammate, Kumar Rocker? Um, I I have Kumar uh, a little bit uh, further down. Um, uh, he is, he's bigger, but he does have the propensity to kind of struggle at times um, with his walks and, and hits and stuff. Uh, but he does have the ability to be lights out. So I just think that Leiter is a little bit more consistent um, of a pitcher right now than Rocker. Um, but I do think that Rocker has the higher upside because, I mean, we saw, I think it was like in 2019 where he went um, in the World Series um, and just had a absolute amazing game against Duke. I think it was like double-digit strikeouts. I think a complete game. So there is a high ceiling there, but I think Jack Leiter is just a tad bit better. I see the word polished a lot when it comes to Jack Leiter, which is no surprise given that his dad was a big league pitcher. Yep. You also shouted out in that tweet an Angels right-hander that I hadn't heard of, Andrew Wants. A nice outing a little short at four innings. Yeah, um, to be honest, I had never heard of him either. Uh, but I just kind of wanted to give him a hat tip, not like he sees my Twitter at all. But, you know, going four innings, five strikeouts, no walks, two hits, not bad. So hat tip to you. <laughs> You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Shelley Verstraight from the Dynasty Guru and Dynasty's Child podcast. And Shelley, I always like to wrap up these discussions by looking at some slumps, pumps, dumps, and jumps. Let's start with a, a slump. This is a player who is struggling right now, but you think is worth hanging on to. Um, my guy here, um, Anthony Rendon. Um, I, he he was definitely on the struggle bus the first couple, of, the first you know two months of this season, but he's really started to kind of heat it up here recently. Um, you know, he's hitting two seventy two. Uh, with a 14% uh, uh, strikeout percentage and a 116 rated runs created plus. 
Um, I just really think that he just wasn't healthy in the first couple of uh, months of the season. Um, and I think that he's starting to get back on track. Um, uh, Mike Trout hopefully will be coming back um, after the All-Star break, maybe a week or two after that. And if Rendon is is starting to heat up and then you got Trout back, you have Otani. Yeah, there, there could be a, a – he, he could have a really good second half. Um, so I am definitely hanging on to Anthony Rendon. I have an alternate explanation. I drafted him in the third round in TGFBI, so it's been that kind of year. Uh, how about a, punk, <laughs> a player overachieving but worth selling high? Ah, yeah, this one was a little bit harder for me, but um, I went I went with Casey Mize. Um, the he has pitched pretty well um uh, this season, especially in May. Um, and the Tigers have actually been uh you know playing pretty well. I guess for the Tigers, uh, they, the last two months, they've had an even 500 record, which is not something that they've done in quite a long time. Um, but I, if someone wanted to, um, if I was able to trade Casey Mize, I totally would. Um, I don't really think that the Tigers are going to keep up their even 500 pace. So I don't know how, how many wins that he is going to actually be able to accumulate. And also, um, the GM has said that they're going to start limiting Mice's innings at some point. I don't know what at some point is. I don't know if that's, you know, tomorrow. I don't know if that's two months from now. But at some point, his innings are going to start to get limited. So if I can sell high to get a kind of uh, a pitcher of the same caliber whose innings are not going to be limited, um, I would do that. And uh, truer words were never spoken when you said, Detroit's playing quite well for Detroit. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> How about a dump? This is an underachiever that you think is underachieving and worth replacing. Uh, this one was easy for me. It's uh, Glabar Torres. Um, I mean, I drafted him in, him in Raz Slam. Um, so I did think, I think I drafted him in like the sixth round. So I did think that he was going to be much better than he's shown. Um, the power has been non-existent this season. Um, he's just hitting okay for average. I mean, he's hitting 242, which again is just okay. I mean, if he's and he's not if he's not giving you power, he's not really giving you stolen bases. And I just really haven't seen anything from him that sh is going to sh that has shown that he's going to show that power that he showed back um, in 2018, 2019. So I just don't think that it's going to get much better for Torres. So I definitely would look to be either trading or honestly, even just dropping him if your league is kind of shallow. And finally, our jumps, uh, targets, if they're available, who's a jump hitter you'd really jump onto if you had the chance? Um, Miles Straw, um, because I mean, stolen base, the stolen base category, especially if you're in Roto, is really, really bunched up. And Miles Straw has been hitting 341 in June. But more importantly, he has six swipes this month. Um, and he's starting to get more playing time. And if you're hitting in, in the Houston lineup, I, I, I just want you on my team because that, that lineup is absolutely lethal uh, right now. So, uh, yeah, if I can pick up Miles Straw, who really is just going to contribute in stolen bases and maybe a little bit of average, um, I'm fine with that because I really need to get all the stolen bases I can, I can find. And finally, how about a jump pitcher, a target if he's available? Um, I got two here. Um, 
Uh, one is Joe Ross. Um, he's been pitching okay for Joe Ross. I mean, he's not going to be lights out or anything, but I think that he can at least keep you competitive in a lot of your ratio categories. Um, but another guy is Eduardo Rodriguez. Um, he absolutely looked horrible in, in May and most of June. Um, but in his last two starts, he's looked like the Erod of, you know, 2019. He was going up against the Rays and the Yankees. He didn't, he limited the walks. He had plenty of strikeouts. He got kind of, uh, unfortunate Babbitt luck. Um, the Red Sox defense uh, is really not that great. So uh, there was a couple of just bad misplays there. But Erod actually looked like the old Erod on the mound. So if you could trade for him or if he, you know, got dumped during his really, really bad stretch in May, I would go pick him up because he's starting to he's starting to look good. Shelly Verstraits slump Anthony Rendon of the Angels. Her pump, Casey Mize of Detroit, uh, dump is Glaber Torres of the Yankees, jump hitter Miles Straw of Houston, and two jump pitchers, Joe Ross of Washington, and a homer pick, Eduardo Rodriguez of the Red Sox. Uh, geez, Shelley, this has been terrific. Remind our listeners where they can keep up with Shelley Verstreet. Yeah, this this is really has this really has been fun, Patrick. So again, uh, thanks for having me on. Um, but you can check me out on Twitter at Shelley V underscore six four three. Um, I I write over at the Dynasty Guru, and I'm also on the Dynasty Shop podcast. It comes out Tuesday mornings, um, so just uh, subscribe, and uh, it'll just like pop into your feed. Again, Shelley, thanks very much for joining us today. It's been a, a terrific, very interesting session, and I hope I get to talk to you again soon. Yeah, I hope so, and again, thanks for having me. Shelley Verstraight writes regularly for Dynasty Guru and appears on the Dynasty's Child podcast. A quick break here. We'll be back with our HQ commentaries, the Minor League Minute, Frequent Flyer, and Extra Innings all coming up on Baseball HQ Radio. Right now, though, it's time in the show when I get to let you know about some of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business in the Arsenal Report. Tanner Smith looks at pitchers' responses to this whole sticky stuff crackdown, focusing on a couple of veterans, Marcus Stroman and Rich Hill. In the speculator column, Ryan Bloomfield has his all second half speculation team. We talked about that with Nick a little earlier. And in Facts and Flukes Spotlight, Ryan Bloomfield again doing double duty by taking a deep dive on New York Yankee shortstop Glaber Torres. And those are just three articles among dozens. A small sampling of all the great content you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. Player performance validation in facts and flukes. News updates in playing time today. Roster forecasting in playing time tomorrow. Buyer's guides for hitters, starters, and relievers. Fantasy market analysis in Brad Kuhlman's Market Pulse column. Injury analysis in Matthew Cederholm's column, The Big Hurt. And of course, groundbreaking fantasy baseball research. As well, there are all kinds of tools you can use, like the player projections. They're updated every day. We have daily dashboards, pitcher matchup planners, and leading indicators for hitters and pitchers. Add it all up, there's expert content plus tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues. And they're why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio, PD here. Time now for our regular commentaries. The frequent flyer into my extra innings commenter coming up. 
and leading off it's the minor league minute. And here with a look at some lesser known names in this year's futures game is Baseball HQ minor leagues analyst Rob Gordon. This week, the American and National League rosters were announced for the 2021 Futures game in Denver on July 11th. There will obviously be a tremendous amount of talent on display and plenty of compelling storylines as the game returns after a one-year hiatus. Some of the most recognizable prospects include Jared Kalanick, Spencer Torkelson, Adley Rutschman, C.J. Abrams, and Bobby Witt Jr., all of whom are top 10 prospects in the 2021 Baseball HQ100. For fantasy managers, those elite prospects are likely unavailable, but there will be some interesting players who have, until now, flown under the radar, and this week we take a look at some of those players, starting with the Los Angeles Dodgers' Andre Jackson. Jackson had Tommy John's surgery as a junior at the University of Utah, but the savvy Dodgers still drafted him in the 12th round, and he's shown an electric arm since his return to the mound. He features a lively mid-90s heater that tops out at 98, a cutter, a slider, and an above-average changeup. Since making his pro debut in 2018, Jackson is 12-9 with a 3.51 ERA and 276 punch-outs in just 225 innings pitched. Another under-the-radar hurler is the Pirates' Ronzi Contreras. Contreras was signed by the Yankees out of the Dominican Republic in 2016 and came over to the Pirates in the Jamison Tyone trade in January. Contreras doesn't have elite velocity, with a fastball that sits at 92-95, but he does pound the strike zone and backs up the heater with a plus changeup and an average curve. In eight starts for AA Altoona, the 21-year-old is 3-1 with a 2.00 ERA and just nine walks to go along with 64 strikeouts and 45 innings pitched. The Pirates don't have much advanced pitching depth, so it wouldn't be shocking to see Contreras make his big league debut later this year. Finally, the Twins' Josh Winder, a 7th round pick out of VMI, looks like another sleeper. At 6'5", 210 pounds, Winder has an athletic frame and runs his fastball in at 94-98 to with an improved changeup and an above-average slider. In 10 starts for AA Wichita, the 24-year-old Winder is 3-3 with a 198 ERA with 10 walks and 65 strikeouts and 54 and two-thirds innings pitched. While Torkelson, Abrams, Witt, Rutschman, and Kellenick will rightfully be at the center of attention in Colorado, it'll be interesting to see how some of these lesser-known players fare under the bright lights of the Futures game, and fantasy managers in deep keeper format should pay close attention, as you could find a diamond in the rough. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ minor league analyst Rob Gordon. Rob Gordon is a member of the Baseball HQ scouting team and has his minor league minute here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. And speaking of scouting, this week at BaseballHQ.com, our daily call-ups report has been busy covering the debuts of prospects like Milwaukee left-hander Aaron Ashby, St. Louis right-hander Roel Ramirez, and the big fish Tampa shortstop Wander Franco. Now it's time for the Frequent Flyer, a commentary on players who might be available in your free agent pool and who have the potential to get enough playing time and production to make them worth considering for a spot on your rosters. Here with a look at Houston outfielder Jake Myers is Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. According to the American Mosquito Control Association, Texas has 85 species of mosquitoes, the most in the United States. Nevertheless, maybe Texas, more specifically Sugarland, Texas, just outside Houston, now has a skeeter worth watching closely. Born on June 18, 1996, in Omaha, Nebraska, the home of Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway, Jacob Berkshire Myers, Jake for short, followed his father's footsteps playing baseball at the University of Nebraska in Lincoln, the Cornhuskers earning third-team All-American honors in 2017 for Darren Erstad's team, 
before being drafted by the Houston Astros later that same year. Now 25 and playing for the Sugarland Skeeters, the AAA affiliate of the Houston Astros, Jacob Berkshire Myers, Jake for short, is so far proving to be a good investment. Through 43 games, Myers is batting 331 with 14 home runs and 5 steals for the Skeeters, including batting a scorching 337 with 9 home runs swatted in June alone. Wow! Even so, Myers' 352 batting average on balls in play and his 41% batting eye ratio, comparing walks to strikeouts, suggests regression, big time regression, coming in 2021. That's why 25-year-old Houston Astros outfielder Jacob Berkshire Myers, Jake for short, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be a long shot, who may be worth the flyer if he is still one of the Skeeters still available in your league. Even so, swatting five home runs in May and nine home runs in June, already exceeding his career high of nine home runs in 2019, shows developing power. In a recent interview, June 15, 2021, with SB Nation's Jimmy Price, Myers said, The alternate site last year was just huge for me. I got a ton of reps with a ton of great coaches and players, especially at the higher levels, and got to see some really good arms and really get comfortable with what I need to work on and just get better. And he got better. Significantly better. Digging deeper, something we love to do at BaseballHQ.com, Although it might be easy to overlook Myers' 267 career batting average of the Miners, Myers did produce an elite 90% contact rate during that same time, suggesting that he may be capable of hitting for both power and average on a sustained level. So don't swat that Sugarland Skeeter, Jake Myers, just yet. Instead, maybe consider adding the aforementioned Jacob Berkshire Myers, outfielder Houston, Jake for short, as our frequent flyer for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky at BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has his frequent flyer commentary here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for Extra Innings, my comment on baseball and fantasy baseball, and this week I'd like to talk about how the ADP first-rounders are doing at the halfway point of the 2021 season. You know, the master, Ron Chandler, has said for many years that only about a third of first-round picks produce first-round value. So I thought it might be interesting to take a look at that bold prediction as we hit the halfway point of the season. As I mentioned in the intro, it is the halfway point of the season, much nearer than the All-Star break, which, by the way, is when we're going to have our special roundtable edition with Ray Murphy and Todd Zola to dish out our mid-season fantasy awards, even though it's not actually mid-season, as I just explained. Confused? You won't be after the next edition of Soap. I grabbed the dollar values from Baseball HQ's 5x5 15-team valuations, and the references to ADPs are based on the NFBC drafts that HQ uses in its tools. Okay, here's what I found out that interested me. Ron's formula that only a third of ADP first-rounders make it would be 5 out of 15 actual first-rounders, but he's dead wrong this time. In fact, only four first-rounders by ADP have been first-rounders by performance. They are Fernando Tatis, top of the table at $42 in value despite losing games to injury. Then comes Ronald Acuna, third year to date, 
at $38. Jacob deGrom, fourth overall, also at $38, despite some missed action. And Trey Turner, sixth in year-to-date value at $37. A couple of more first-rounders by ADP, Garrett Cole and Jose Ramirez, have supplied second-round value in the mid-$20 range. And Freddie Freeman has been a third-round value so far at about $22. The rest of the ADP first-rounders in descending order... Trevor Stories, fourth at $20. Juan Soto, fifth at $17. Mookie Betts, my first overall pick in the TGFBI, seventh at $15. Shane Bieber, tenth at $12. Mike Trout, injury trouble this year, 13th at 8 bucks, And Christian Yelich, the 14th round, $7 worth. So who did make the first round that must have outperformed their ADPs? Well, it's no surprise that we have three hitters from the modern murderer's row in Toronto, led by Vladimir Guerrero at $41, just a buck behind Tatis. Then we have ADP second rounder Bo Bichette. He's seventh overall year to date at $35. And how about ADP ninth rounder Marcus Semyon, who's $33 year to date, is good for eighth place in year to date value. This year's first-round overachievers include two Cincinnati Reds. Nick Castellanos is in with Merrifield and Semyon at 33 bucks, And the second biggest jump in the first round, ADP 14th rounder Jesse Winker, whose $29 value so far this year ties him with Red Sox teammates Raphael Devers and Xander Bogarts. One of the most interesting stories of the season so far has been Shohei Otani, who has generated $38 as a hitter, which is tied for third in overall year-to-date value with Acuna and with Jacob deGrom. I didn't have a way to really add in Otani's pitching value, which is actually pretty modest, because of the confusion he causes with league rules. Is he a separate hitter and a pitcher? Is he both, but you can't use him as both? Anyway, he's clearly much more valuable in fantasy as a hitter, so that's where I put him. But the biggest overachiever, obviously, Cedric Mullins II of Baltimore. 11th overall at $32. He didn't have an ADP at all. He wasn't even drafted. Two other pitchers besides DeGrom have made first-round value, but they were both far from first-round in ADPs. Kevin Gausman was an ADP ninth-rounder, has earned $33 so far, in there with Merrifield, Semyon, and Castellanos. And Brandon Woodruff, an ADP third-rounder, checks in at 31 in, in the top 10. Let's look at some other jumpers and slumpers. Uh, the biggest round jump besides Mullins has been Adolis Garcia. His ADP was in the 50th round, must have been one of those draft and hold type leagues, and his year to date puts him squarely in the second round. The biggest round jump for a pitcher, Carlos Rodon, a 39th rounder by ADP, solidly in the third round year to date. We have six guys in the last four regular rounds, 20 through 23, who have jumped up more than 15 rounds and have therefore been enormous generators of value for fantasy managers. How about Freddie Peralta? There's Brian Reynolds, uh, Dave Potts' favorite boring old guy. You'll remember that from last week's show. Uh, Yuli Gurriel, Isaiah Kiner-Falefa, Miles Straw, and Justin Upton. And if you need an argument for the next draft you're in with some know-it-all who says to just grab up those high-round pitchers and ignore the risk, well, Shane Bieber and Lucas Giolito have come up nine rounds short of their ADPs, Jack Flaherty seven rounds short, and Aaron Nola 15 rounds short of his ADP. And even at that, boy, you could have done a lot worse. And maybe you did. 
Glad to remind you of it. Three more starting pitchers in the top four rounds have delivered minus 60 round performance. Luis Castillo was taken in the second by ADP. He's returned 66th round value, so he's minus 64 rounds for the year. Blake Snell was taken in the third. He's a 63rd round value, so he's minus 60. And Kenta Maeda, a fourth round ADP, 69th round value. He's minus 65 for 2021. My last thought was doing an exercise like this gets a guy thinking. If I have the first overall pick in next year's draft, who am I likely to take? I don't know, of course, but it seems to come down to these possibilities. Tatis and Acuna are obviously five-category hitters, but a little bit prone to injuries. Tatis a little more than Acuna. Guerrero is obviously a four-category monster, but doesn't deliver any stolen bases. He does have a 60-point on-base percentage edge over the field, which might help his stock in on-base leagues. And then there's Otani, also a five-category guy, but almost certainly DH only at next year's drafts. He's an easier choice if your league rules let you use him as both a hitter and a pitcher. And finally, there's DeGrom an overall pitching monster whose contributions to the pitching decimals is probably proportionately greater than any hitter can contribute in any category. But DeGrom has shown signs of injury issues this year, and of course he can't help your team in saves, so he's a four-category guy and not five. And no matter what else I hear, I can't shake the idea that first-round pitchers are just too risky, even though I think the evidence continues to show a first-round anything is too darn risky. So who's the right pick? Ask me next March. Good luck in the second half, and to all our American friends, have a safe 4th of July. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick David, and I have my extra innings commentary here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, July the 2nd. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 31 of the 2021 Fantasy Baseball season. I want to thank our guest expert for this Friday full edition, Shelley Verstrait from Dynasty Guru and the Dynasty's Child podcast, as a great guest and a must-read in her prospects coverage both online and in that Dynasty's Child podcast. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Ray Murphy. Our Minor League Minute commentator was Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon. And our Frequent Flyer commentator was Baseball HQ Analyst Alex Becky. I'm Patrick Davich, your Extra Innings commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. And remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also follow me on my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. Take a second to go wherever you catch your pods and leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. That helps us find new listeners and that helps us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again in seven days with another Friday full edition featuring an interview with BaseballHQ.com bullpens columnist, Doug Dennis, as well as all the usual great stuff. That's next week on the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. See you next Friday, and for now, so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators. 
or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.